0: I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future.
1: And Tom, let's talk about some final events, Bionic.
2: Okay, sounds like a good idea. Yep. Uh, and that's because, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very interesting guest and an even more interesting topic this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week visiting with us is Nick Redfern, the author of a new book called Final Events. And we're going to be talking this week about uh, government whistleblowers expose an occult UFO agenda.
1: Very light, very airy.
2: Um, this is about as classic future quake as it yeah. gets, isn't it? No kidding. Um, we... Um, are going to jump right into our interview. We've mm-hmm. got a lot to cover with them. So, with no further ado, here is Nick Redford, and we'll be back to discuss it further here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake show. I'm Doctor Future,
1: and I'm Tom. There's going to be a lot of questions raised here tonight. Bionic. Exactly
2: right. That's a good middle name, and yep. uh, hopefully a an few explanatory a- ones. Few mm-hmm. answers coming in there too. Hopefully, we have a guest that I'm so excited to finally have on the Future Quake show after six years being on the air, long overdue. And I think it was worth the wait because we have an incredible topic, one that's going to ideally fit yeah. uh, for our listeners. We have Nick Redford, who is the author of a brand-new book out, a, a bombshell book called Final Events. Uh, and we're going to be talking this week about government whistleblowers uh, expose, uh, expose an occult UFO agenda. Uh, and Mr. Redford, I want to tell you it's great to finally have you for this long-overdue visit to the Future Quick Show.
3: Well, thank you. Thanks for
2: having me on. Well, it's a privilege to for you to uh, uh, for us to have you uh, work us into your schedule. I know you're you're really in demand. Um, I know many of our listeners are familiar with you and your work, uh, either from your your many books that you've done, or your appearances on national television, uh, or even your regular visits on radio programs like Coast to Coast with George Norrie. Uh I know you're one of the most popular guests there. Um, based upon my limited exposure to your work. Uh, I personally have s- perceived that you really have a reputation for providing a pretty unbiased journalistic ethic to your work in this area and uh, as well as your willingness to report even unpopular findings uh in this area in your search for truth uh, and your focus on fourteen topics that are of particular interest to our audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know what we 're going to be talking about is going to be ideal, but you know that that's that 's a uh, impression I have of you based from my ex- experience uh with you.
3: Uh, I mean, what I I try and do, you know, I always tell people when you're dealing with something like UFOs, the the U in UFOs still stands for unidentified. And so it'd be kind of reckless to, I guess, really kind of, you know, suggest that we know what's going on when we're still, for the most part, sort of scraping around for answers. And I think when people claim to have the answers to everything, that's more of a belief system because, you know, we're still asking a lot of questions.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Good point.
2: And, and and that that really is the position of responsible journalism, is to collect data and facts, report it. It's certainly fine to opine if if you feel uh, you can sort of correlate it into something, but as long as you segregate you know your views of what you think the significance or the meaning of it from the hard facts. And that's why you really need responsible people in particularly in fields like this as much as anything. And uh, I I think that's really a reputation that you've earned uh, okay. in this area. Uh, For those in our audience uh, who may not be familiar with you or your work, uh, there may be a few out there, could you begin by giving us just a very brief synopsis of your background and history, uh, some of the subject matter of your interest in this area, and examples of some work you're noted for?
3: Yes, sure. Um, When I finished at school, I began working on a rock music magazine back in England called Zero, and that's sort of what really got me involved in, in journalism and writing, um, but how and why I got involved in the UFO subjects was that my father was in the British Royal Air Force and he worked on radar and he was involved in several incidents in the early 1950s when UFOs were tracked on the radar scopes approaching the British um, coastline on the East Coast from broadly the um, area of Scandinavia. And bearing in mind this was the 50s, height of the Cold War, you know, the first thought was could it be the Russians? So. Fighter planes were sent up from a nearby Air Force base to try and intercept them. The pilots couldn't get anywhere near close to them at all. And so essentially, they were forced to return to base. And this occurred over the course of several nights. After the third night, the incidents came to a halt, but everybody was taken into a room, sworn to secrecy, and basically told not to talk about it. And my dad didn't tell me the story till I was about 13 or 14. And then, of course, later on, Doing the journalism work, I then thought about, well, you know, why not try and do do some journalism at least and writing in relation to UFOs. And so that's what sort of kicked me off. And I think I've done about 16 or 17 books now on everything from UFOs to Hollywood Scandal to Bigfoot to the Loch Ness Monster and and a few other things as well.
2: Yeah, I don't know if there could be a more classic Future Quake guest, Tom. Yeah. I don't know.
3: I, I think he's got Future
1: Quake sort of tattooed on him somewhere. Yes. He doesn't know it. De- <laughs> <Some way>. De- <laughs> we had destiny to meet. Sort of like the tit- on the bottom of his feet or Sort of like the Titanic and the
2: iceberg. We're yeah. destined to meet each other. <laughs> there you go. Uh, your latest book, Final Events, is a shocking and a disturbing expose, even by Nick Redford's standards. And it's uh, consistent with your reputation for eyebrow-raising subjects and premises. Um, it begins with a discussion and an interview you had, I think it was four years ago, with Ray Boucher, yes. mm-hmm. who is actually an interesting person. He's a he's a pastor, but he's also mm-hmm. a distinguished ufologist yeah. uh, who just so happened to sort of spill the beans on on the contact that he had on our show earlier this year. It mm-hmm. took us about a year to get him coaxed on our show and came on and. Uh, had had an incredible show with him, and it just so happens that is the beginning uh, kickoff for your book. Um, What prompted your interview with Ray Boucher, and and what was the premise? If you could just give the premise of why you had interest in it, and what did you do to set out to advance his story?
3: Okay, well, basically, um, the premise of the book, um, it deals with a think tank-type organization in the government, or I should say the intelligence community. You know, the, the government itself isn't sort of like a really unified entity. You know, it's made up of different sections, etc. But what I would say is that the book itself deals with this think tank type group that addressed the UFO issue, concluded that UFOs are real. But rather than coming to the conclusion, as many people have, that UFOs are extraterrestrial, they came around to the idea that it was sort of a cult-based and demonic in origin. Um, sort of a supernatural deception rather than a literal interpretation of aliens. Now, the, the reason, or the only reason, literally, why I got interested in this story was purely and simply because of the story of Ray Boucher. And what happened was that, I think it was about 15 years ago, something like that, Linda Howe wrote a book called Glimpses of Another Reality. Right. which detailed all, all her various UFO researches, etc., up until that time, and following on from her first book, um, An Alien Harvest, which looked at the cattle mutilation mystery. And in this particular book, Linda reproduced um, like a communication, a letter that she'd received from these two guys that Ray had met with. And the book, basic, Linda's book basically talks about how Ray Boucher had been contacted by these DOD scientists and told, you know, this particular scenario. And then from there, they'd expressed interest in communicating with Linda Howe, and Linda reproduced their letter in her book. So that sort of set me off thinking, wow, you know, this is an interesting story about this man, Ray Boshay, who I knew of, because Ray had looked quite deeply into the Rendlesham Forest UFO case in England, which, you know, where I'm originally from, so I knew about his input in that story. He tried to get his senator at the time senator exon be involved in, in looking into the case and so when i read linda's book you know that this sort of fascinated me but i'll be the first to admit at the time i forgot about it um you know after reading it and then in, uh, by the in, way
2: nick, uh, nick uh, mm-hmm. that's she was on our show too talking mm-hmm. about this okay. book uh mm-hmm. just i don't know a couple of years ago and, oh, okay and she brought up Uh, Well, I brought up this when reviewing that book about this incident, and that's what led to us and led me pursuing Ray Boucher. So I had the same response you did, and she had mentioned it, and and she gives high marks for him for Mm -hmm. being a responsible uh, investigator and Mm -hmm. thought very highly of him, and I found that very intriguing. And so I had to do my own little Nick Redford (laughs) investigatory work to find him and to do that. Mm -hmm. So this all rings the bell. Uh, yeah. b- by the way, if I can, and I, w- I want you to pick up your story here, but I, I have to ask you, you know what? I-, I met you briefly uh, f- for the first and only time back around November of 2006 at uh-huh. the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. Oh, yeah. And you were standing off to the side. I came up and you didn't know me from Adam. I just sort of strolled up there yeah. and ask you something about this, something about spiritual implications of these things. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned to me at the time that... You understood that abductees and others were actually being approached by the military and asking them if these creatures were talking about Jesus and that they yeah. believed that these that these beings were demonic in nature, mm-hmm. that the military told them. Now, that totally shocked me when you said that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you didn't know me very well, and you just happened to mention it like that. Was this predicated upon just having interviewed Ray Boucher about that period of time? Was that... Well, get your wheels turning?
3: Yeah, what happened was I actually did a formal interview with Ray in January 2007. Oh, okay. So, like roughly two months after I met you. Right. But I actually contacted and spoke with Ray early in 2006, and then, sorry, mid 2006. And then we, what we basically did was to sort of stay in touch. And then it was later on, as I said, in January 2007, when I did the formal interview. But the formal interview wasn't the first time I'd spoken to him. You know, we'd had contact sure. leading up to that to, this, to discuss it. So, But what happened was that, as I said, I, I read the story in Linda's book, and then I have to admit, you know, I forgot about it after some time, but then other aspects of the story were related in a book called UFO Friend or Foe, written by uh, Jenny Randalls about the Rendlesham Forest case in 1998. And then again, it was mentioned in there, and that sort of, again, spurred my interest. And what happened was... But I was doing an article for a magazine about the Rendlesham Forest story and just looking for new leads and information and stumbled across Ray's story again and thought, well, you know, I keep forgetting about this. Why don't I just sort of take the bull by the horns, contact him, and let's see what we can do with the story. So in other words, had Ray not been approached by people talking about this particular theory, I would have have never had any idea that, you know, this group existed in the first place. The fact that he met them in person or representatives of them in person at least, um, you know, allowed me to sort of take it further and see where we could go with the story.
4: Hmm.
2: And, and, and the content of uh, – and, and our, our listeners can go back to listen to our earlier show. He went into some detail about it. But if I could summarize, basically he was approached by someone who showed some seemingly – uh, valid credentials from the defense and intelligence yeah. fields, wanted to meet with him right there in Lincoln, Nebraska, where he worked, had some affiliation with the uh, university there when he, when he was there. And they, they sat down, and they basically were whistleblowers, uh, mm-hmm. blowing the whistle on some concerns that some people with deep within these government groups uh, about the UFO incident, and these people evidently were professing Christians, and believed that there were certain activities going on. Now, now the parts that I read with them was not only just the fact that something maybe had a UFO connection, but but it was definitely an, a, some kind of occult connection to open portals. And that uh it talked about ritualistic uh activities that our government got involved in, rituals and, and Aleister Crowley kind of stuff to help facilitate those portals that had gotten out of hand. Uh, he even reported that they had had to bring in exorcist, according to their testimony, uh, because of the effect it had on the researchers. And basically these folks were sort of getting spooked that it had gotten out of hand and somehow wanted to get the word out and trusted him uh, to do this. Is, it, is this basically the essence of... Of what you yes. understand
3: Yes, it is That's when I interviewed Ray, he told me that he had been contacted by these two DoD scientists who he was able to verify he told me able to verify their positions as specifically as physicists within the DoD, and they were working on this project to contact what Ray said would, would described to him or in terms of their title as non human entities. You know, the turn aliens or greys or nothing like that was ever mentioned. It was always non-human entities. And it was basically perceived as like a spin-off from the whole remote viewing project of the government, you know, uh, back in the 70s and 80s. And the idea was that if these entities, the greys or whatever, whatever their point of origin is, they seem to possess sort of extraordinary mental powers. And the idea of the project was, well, if we can harness those powers, we can use them as a weapon. You know so sort of like remote viewing, but rather than just spying on the enemy, literally using the power of the mind to sort of psychically assassinate with remote remotely induced heart attacks or strokes you know an enemy president or something like that that was literally the the, the notion and the idea and the people who got involved in the project initially some of them at least thought they were dealing with literal extraterrestrials although it's never clear or it wasn't clear as to whether these scientists and people ever met these entities or is a tra- case of trying to contact them with their minds but the the idea that they were dealing with aliens seemed to i guess vanish when things started to go wrong you know as you pointed out in the project sort of a lot of negative activity etc and having to bring in exorcists and they, be- they came to the conclusion that these entities were very real but they were highly manipulative and deceptive and were actually using the sort of UFO slash alien motif as a means of deception to get their claws into us. And again, you know, they were talking about people like uh, Crowley and Parsons opening doorways to different realms to allow the these entities through to almost, you know, to sort of fight, begin the countdown to the the final battle between good and evil. And um, that was sort of the premise. And when Ray told me that, you know, he he basically outlined the entire story for me and how he came to be told of it, you know, the, the people, um, the project they were working on, the sort of the, the ideas, etc. And so it was from Ray's nod, if you like, and, and telling me the account that I elected to sort of try and take it further and use some of the information and leads he gave me to try and pull further people out the woodwork, if you like, and, and see what they could say that might dovetail with it and confirm it, or equally you know write it off as disinformation at that point i didn't i didn't really know where it was going to go it was just a matter of sort of putting the feelers out
2: well and, and i think you're the perfect person to have done this because you have done both in the past you you have both confirmed some things as mysteries and also debunked others uh to the chagrin of many people and uh So as far as having an honest broker, I think those people made a good choice in picking Ray Boucher, and it was fortuitous that uh, you and Ray got together uh, for this phase of it. How did you know where to get started? How how do you start with this enigmatic information?
3: Well, basically, what it was, there was several things, um, specifically certain Air Force bases and contacts that Ray didn't want me to mention in the book, and I didn't. You know, I I upheld that. Um, He... You know, he he was happy to talk about the interview, but there were some things that he preferred to to remain off the record. And so it was by my ability to not mention this, but still follow the information, that I was able to contact one of the Air Force bases that was somehow involved in all this. And I I basically had nowhere to go, so I literally just phoned. And I got through to the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, which you know, we know has been involved in the UFO issue. Mm-hmm. And and it was basically a case of being transferred, not me specifically asking for them. And I just laid my cards on the table and I said, look, you know, I work as a journalist and author and I'm following this story, suggesting there are people in the military and the defense and intelligence world, some of who are stationed or were stationed at your specific base, who seem to have knowledge and information about this, Theory or belief system that UFOs have demonic origins. And I basically got the reply along the lines of, "Well, that's interesting, but you know, we don't do anything like that at all." Right. Um I said, like, "Okay." Now you uh, mentioned this
2: base in your book, right?
3: Yeah. Well, the follow-on. Yeah, there was actually two oh, bases.
4: Okay. The other one
3: is Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska. Okay. And I was sort of at a not so much at a loss, but you know, it would have been more difficult to know where to go to to find the information, and so. I, you know I, not only was I at the loss you know I just didn 't know where else to go. but what happened was I actually got a call um, and the interesting thing was that the call came through and the number wasn 't blocked, and I was actually able to google it and it demonstrated that it was off at airfield space and When I called the number back um, after the conversation, it turned out that the number that was dialed in on to me was actually like an operator service it offered, so in other words, I got the main operator service number there, but I didn't get the internal number of who actually was dialing. Mm-hmm. What I mean. yeah, right. And and they basically said, you know, are you interested in meeting somebody from this group called the Collins Elite? And i I was like, well, what's the Collins Elite? You know, I, I truthfully didn't know because Ray was never given um, you know, any sort of um, indication as to what the name of this project was. It was just, mm-hmm. you know, a project. And so I was like, well, you know, what is it? And it was basically along the lines of well, we understand, you know, you're interested in this story about how certain people in the official world at some point have been following this demonic angle. And I was like, well, yeah, sure. You know, that's specifically why I've been researching and phoning around military bases in, in Nebraska. And, but again, this is, you know, this is one of the areas I always point out to people I need to be cautious upon. The fact that, you know, why was somebody so keen to get the story out? Why was there no attempt made to block the number? Is this an indication that we're dealing with sympathetic insiders or is it really something along the lines of some ongoing deception to confuse the issue of what's really at the heart of the UFO mystery? You know, I I always have to be aware of that. And, you know, I have no, you know, problems admitting that there's a possibility that it is deception and that that's the reason specifically why the story was told. Mm -hmm. But the thing that sways me away from that is the fact that Ray was given the story 20 years ago, and nothing was done in the meantime to try and spread it further. You know, Ray, I suspect, maybe they wanted Ray to put the story out on a large scale, but he didn't, he just sort of briefly discussed it with people like Linda, and, you know, things were published in Uh small articles here and there. So, in other words it 's not like it was a new story that I was suddenly mm-hmm. targeted with. We can prove it has a long history going back two decades at least and the as trail as well. was still fresh.
2: You picked up yes, the trail exactly. from left off. it was still fresh, same contacts. If it was a disinformation yeah. program, it 's likely they would have folded it and moved on yeah. and you 'd found uh, you know an empty line. Uh, yeah, you know exactly. this whole idea about the potential for deception uh, yeah. we know you understand that our our listeners certainly do because that 's one of our premises, even though uh, we're on a, a Christian show and, and discuss things from like biblical worldview. Our, our our premise is that deception is the order of the day today on every level. And even people of faith need to be really tuned into the fact that we're immersed in deception by our own government, political issues, issues of war. This is no exception. This is just another one that requires discernment. There, there's a word in the Bible used called circumspection, where you have to look all the way around you 360 degrees to understand what's really going on. And uh this this topic particularly is one that requires that because you're immersed in disinfo. So some of those kind of people have been outed in In the ufology communities, I understand it uh, we don't follow it extremely close here we we're, we're like you, we have other topics and things we pursue. This is just something that's a little bit of an aside when there's breaking news in the area. but we mm-hmm. certainly know that there's been evidence of that uh, of that occurring, so certainly very wise. So if I understand from your book and we 're not going to cover everything in the book because no, there sure. are so many revelations per page in your book. <laughs> that I gotta insist on from what I know of our futurians that listen here. I
1: had to tape my head together because <laughs> it was gonna explode.
2: You, you gotta get this book because we're just gonna hit a few high spots yeah. even in the length of this interview. But as I understand it, you, you made this cold call. You put your cards on the table. Uh, you went through like a public affairs kind of approach. But then in the initiation came back to you, if I understood the book right. Some, somebody actually went and contacted you in response that had gone through their, somebody through their chain. Is that? Is that correct?
3: Yeah, basically, I was asked, well, not asked, um, I was sort of invited to meet with a man, man named Richard Duke, which again was sort of an, an enigmatic situation in itself. And this involved me, I live in just outside Dallas, uh, having to drive to Albuquerque, New Mexico, you know, which isn't the end of the world. It's actually not, you know, too far. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, sort of sat down with this elderly man who was in his mid 90s, excuse me, mid 80s. And, um, who related to me sort of the early years, if you like, of this group that was reportedly called the college Elite. And, you know, people have said, is it feasible, you know, that it was all, you know, as I said, some sort of um, hoax or disinformation? Well, it could be. The, the only thing that I sort of discounts in that respect, as it relates to Richard Duke, is the fact that, you know, when you're, now, I don't mean this in disrespect, but when you've got an 86-year-old man, as he was at the time, to have him at that age have to sort of learn a new script, a very intricate script of something that he was not really involved in 60 years ago, you know, as a form of disinformation, I think that would be pretty difficult, mm-hmm. you know, to have all the intricacies and all the ins and outs. And he did come across to me as someone who was a very old man, but who was actually recalling from memory the work that he did back in the late 40s and 50s. And, again, that's not meant to, as any disrespect to 86-year-olds, but it is, you know, I think it's a valid right. point that if you're that age, it would be a tough task to hold this story together without any discrepancies and, you know, making mistakes along the way. So, well.
2: and, and his testimony was validated by other people you interviewed later, I think. It was consistent with it. And, yes. and and if it was burnished, if it was something he had had as a life experience, that burnishes in your mind, which when you're older, yeah. uh, you know just like someone who's had a very rousing military career or something like that, mm-hmm. they're going to remember that even in old age, talking about the old war stories and things, and that's yeah. what it came across as someone who had lived it, and it's yeah. something he, hadn't, he would never forget
3: mm-hmm. yeah i think I think that that's a very good point you know that uh, and there's there's a lot you can say for you know sitting opposite someone and, you know, realizing that they're speaking truthfully. I think, you know, when, not just in ufology, but any subject, if you regularly interview people, then there is, you know, a very good argument for saying to become a good judge of character. And I think you can see that in people's reflections in their faces, and you can hear it in their voice. Um, and, you know, that's something I, I felt I got from him. You know, granted, it's my personal opinion, but it is something I felt I got from him that, you know... Um, he was speaking truthfully now although i do believe he was speaking truthfully the big question is what was the motivation in doing so was it because he was a sympathetic insider and there was this sort of cabal that wanted to get the story out or was it you know to test the waters for a, a bigger release of information or was it because you know that they the, because i was always told later the project was sort of coming to a close was it you know, to sort of clear the decks, or something, or even an, another obscure reason, you know, that we just don't really have any any understanding of. That's, you know, that is one of the big problems is trying to understand the mindset, you know, of, of right. how the of the, how these people work, basically. Well,
2: and also the possibility exists that he could have been misled as well too. Um, yeah. He could have been sincere in what he was sharing to you, but but be misled above him. We're back at Future Quake with Doctor Future
1: and Tom. This is pretty strange territory, I'll be honest, mm-hmm. bionic.
2: Well, I'm just glad to see that he took the testimony from Brother Ray mm-hmm. and extended it further mm-hmm. and did the work to actually follow some leads and find out who these people are. Mm-hmm. It's still a little murky how he got some of his leads. I don't think he's revealed every little bit of what got it going with the folks at Offutt Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, given his reputation, I'm I trust what he's saying here. Yeah, it would be neat to see if these people could talk to somebody else follow up to him. He seems
1: to be like pretty straightforward about it. You know, he's not mm-hmm. like Mister Mystery trying to shroud mm-hmm. it all in secrecy and like, ooh, the context that I have. Don't tell anybody, I mean, this is classified information. Yeah, he's just saying
0: just what
2: happened. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Somebody else will tell you the truth. It's Merv who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake.
5: Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. we got to go.
2: Let's hit it. Come back tomorrow for our next segment. Till then, we hope your future's always bright. Have a good day.
0: Hasta luego. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.
4: Welcome
0: to
2: the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future.
1: And I'm Tom. Yep, strange territory. Bionic.
2: Well, it's because we're getting ready to begin our second installment of our interview this week with Nick Redfern, who mm-hmm. is the author of a new book out called Final Events, uh, a very, very provocative book. And our theme this week is government whistleblowers expose an occult UFO agenda. And
1: no normal, relaxing, everyday, round of the mill stuff.
2: Well, this is this is a uh, a story, and I recommend everybody get this book. You can go to nickredfern.com. It's f e d e r e n.com or come Future Quake and look it up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a book that ties together so many topics we've talked about on the show with it's Alice like, Crowley yeah, and I Jack Parsons. Say, it's as if he wrote this book yeah, to be on Futurequake. UFOs, you know? uh, all the stuff of Ancient of Days, I think it all sort of correlates together. Mm-hmm. So I think he ties it together with this narrative that certainly has an area. I think it's, it's a very elaborate hoax, if this is all something about a huge hoax.
1: Yeah, no kidding.
2: Now, it's more likely if it would be something counter, it would be like disinfo for some reason. Mm-hmm. I can't think why they would want to use this dis- disinfo because this is more alarming than any other story they could come up with. Yeah,
1: it's like, let's take the craziest thing. Yeah, why would there, that but be?
2: No. I can't see the motives in wanting to do that very yeah. much.
1: You know, he made an interesting point uh, uh, of yesterday in his interview. He said the U in UFO stands for unidentified, and we still don't know what's going on. I thought... Yeah, well, there's an honest honest Joe.
2: You didn't know that this confronted No, no,
1: well I I know what it's all about. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I just thought he was an honest an sure. honest Joe. Sure. And that's broker.
2: his that's his reputation. Yep. Why don't we go to uh, this next segment with all Nick right. Redford, Let's and then it. we'll be back to uh, wrap it up here at Future Quake. So, what did he add to the narrative of to, to extend you further? What were the big bombshells that he laid on you?
3: Okay. Well, he uh, this is why I suspect he was sort of introduced to me. It was because he, Richard Duke, was able to sort of outline the beginnings and sort of about the first 10 to 12 years of the group. And after that, he said he, you know, basically retired. And he had no more involvement. We know whether that's true or not. I speculate in the book. But basically, what he explained to me was that if we go back to, for example, Alistair Crowley, Crowley, you know, was sort of the, you know, the, I guess, the ultimate person people think of, you know, he was described as the great beast, you know, the, the ultimate person they think of when, you know, dealing with the occult, etc. And in 1918, Crowley engaged on this, in this ritual called the Alamantra working, which essentially involved him getting into an altered state of mind by mescaline and hashish, and allegedly sort of communed and communicated with this ent- entity known as LAM, which is L-A-M, which if you look at the pictures of, or the picture of land that Crowley himself drew, it looks pretty much very similar to, you know, a large-headed dwarf-like, Alien entity with peering eyes. You mm-hmm. know, with a, we would consider it to be a grey. Yeah, a lot of this,
2: a lot of this is old hat for our futurians. We've talked about a lot okay. of these things, yeah. specializing on oh, him right, and him and Jack Parsons, yeah. and yeah. this is Future Quick One On One.
3: All
4: right, good. But, but, but,
3: Well, I'll, well I'll, I'll sort of, I'll cut to the chase. What happened was that, as I'm sure you people know, you know, he had this um, contact with Lam. Then, in the later years, you know, decades later, Parsons who. He you know, was an undoubted brilliant rocket scientist as well. You know, he formulated and uh, sorry formed the Aerojet Corporation, which to this day still builds the uh-huh.
4: um,
3: boosters for the space shuttle program. Um, but you know, he he came and linked up with um, with Crowley, and then sort of became or uh, was offered the position of running one of uh, Crowley's outfits in L.A. in California, and um, sort of followed on from the teachings of Crowley, and. Richard Duke told me that what happened, the reason why the Collins elite came to exist, actually had nothing initially to do with Crowley's and and Parsons' relationship. What it was, was that after the state or the nation of Israel was created, um, Parsons heard that the Israeli government was looking to have somebody help them on their rocket programs or their perceived rocket programs, if you like. And he did something very, very stupid when he was working at Hughes Aircraft, Instead of just firing off a resume to the Israelis and saying, hey, you know, if you want my services, I'm happy to come over a couple of years and contract out to you. Instead of doing that, what he did, he stole or borrowed, depending on how you look at it, various documents from his workplace and with the intention of giving them to the Israelis. Now, the first thought on the part of the FBI, Army and Navy Intelligence and security personnel at Hughes Aircraft was that he must be operating as kind of like um, an an espionage agent for the Israelis. But that actually isn't the case. It really was. He was just reckless and just couldn't be bothered to put a good resume together. So thought, I'll send the documents out, which shows the sort of work I've done. But what happened was he got fired from his job, and he lost, what at the time, was a top security, excuse me, Mm -hmm. top secret security clearance. Now, Richard Duke told me that because there were so many people involved in this, the FBI, Army, Air Force intelligence, etc. And everybody was looking at it from different angles, from their own perspective, you know, is he compromising the Army project? Is he compromising the Air Force project? They would get together and have sort of interagency meetings about Parsons and, you know, was he Uh working for Israel or not. And the more they dug into him and did sort of obvious background checks on him, what they found was this issue of him actually having this, quote, other life, as well as they described it, the occult one. And Richard Duke said the more they dug into it, the more they became intrigued by this other life. And what they found were several things that also intrigued them. And bear in mind, we're talking now sort of about 1947. They found that, um, I, I, I won't say a, a friend, but certainly a colleague of Parsons, was Robert Goddard, another rocket scientist who made his base of operations at Roswell. Um, the and other, Parsons, the other
2: father of American rocketry.
3: Yeah, exactly. The um, world,
2: the better known one, actually, yeah, that's and it. other it people. Yeah, that's
3: better known.
4: Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, um, they granted it was a secondhand story but they heard secondhand that Parsons had actually met with Kenneth Arnold, who was arguably the man who ushered in the flying saucer era in 1947. And granted, the people didn't know what happened at Roswell, but they knew. Something had happened, you know, they, they weren't cleared for the secrets of Roswell, but they were cleared to the fact that it wasn't a weather balloon. But the fact that Parsons seemed to have a linkage with Roswell, and he'd met, and he'd met Kenneth Arnold, led these people to believe that with these door-opening activities, that he was somehow tied in with the sudden awakening of the, of the UFO phenomenon, if you like. And that's literally how they got on the trail of Parsons, and what happened was that over the next couple of years, the group itself didn't literally exist as a group. It was kind of like a bunch of guys getting together after work in sort of, you know, having in drinks in a local restaurant or whatever, talking about him and the different theories. And then eventually, somebody in the official world said something along the lines of, well, Grudge and Blue Book, in this, but we're talking about the early 50s by now, don't really seem to be making much headway trying to look at whether or not these are secret weapons of ours or the Russians or E.T., maybe you guys should follow this angle that you've been talking about, you know, informally after work. If we channel some money your way, are you willing to come on board and, you know, spend some time away from your regular job? And, and that's basically how it took off. So the, in the, way I can, the best way I can describe it, the group wasn't in its early couple of decades at least like an agency of the CIA with a specific building it was like people in the intelligence world who had the connections to dig deeper and had these belief systems and ideas and fears of what was going on and who would sort of meet sort of quasi off the record, quasi on the record um, to try and determine what was going on. And that's what I was told by because was, was yeah. how and why it all began.
2: So it was an ad hoc virtual group um, yeah. that had sources of funding lined up they would meander through other groups and the CIA, yeah. so there was no. They wouldn't have to go before Congress and say, "Why are you spending the taxpayers' money to explore yeah. occult activities?" And yeah, and, best, sorry. and sorry. you know UFOs and stuff that people would have would have raised their eyebrows on.
3: Yeah, the best way I can describe it, um, and I didn't put this in the book, but this is how actually one of the members did describe it: would be, "Do you remember the Iran Contra thing in the mid '80s?"
4: Sure, mm-hmm. where.
3: You know, you had all these influential people in the military and the intelligence world getting together as sort of an Iran-Contra group to try and achieve a specific aim. But there never was, you know, like a headquarters of -hmm. the Iran-Contra group or an agency as such. It was people getting under the table funding and following, you know, this particular agenda. And that seems to be the way how this group was. At least for the first decade. Um, well,
2: well, Nick, I'm so glad that probably all that stuff is behind us. As yeah, we as don't a do country. that anymore. I'm I'm, I'm sure there's <laughs> nothing like that that goes on anymore. You know, in our yeah. in our wars or in all the very, trans- transfer transfer money. The board now. Yeah, I'm sure it's very transparent to the American taxpayer. Also, goes on. a a shocking I'm anomaly sure. here. Um, <laughs> now, you know, it's funny that he, he told you his name was Duke. I don't know if you were able to do any kind of independent verification of that because. I, I find it ironic that you met in, in in Albuquerque, I believe, which is known as the Duke City uh you know it was oh, founded I even, yeah I know that. <laughs> it was founded when I read that I thought you know that the actually the Duke of Albuquerque founded a Spanish guy oh, he right? spelled his name slightly different as Albo or rather than Albu, but they changed it, but anyway if 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 it's known if you look it up like you Duke City Speedway is just down the street uh from there where it is that's that's sort of their moniker that they have there. But, you know, I find there's so many collateral areas you can go with your your main premise that are disturbing. This connection with Israel I find interesting because Mm. um, this was not – evidently they knew of him enough to go look for him and to find him. So they must have known enough about Caltech and his work with the guys, you know, and founding JPL and all this other stuff. Where where it was known that, you know, he was doing these ceremonies to the great god Pan when they'd have the rocket things. Uh It was well known in Hollywood what he was doing. I mean, even guys like John Carradine, the famous actor, would yeah. go and read these occult activities, which which puts his son's death, David Carradine, even more interesting like that happened uh, not too many years ago. Mm-hmm. But they must have known about this. And I started looking at the background on this Israeli company, I think it was called, uh, it's actually sort of an American connection, American Technion yeah. Society. Yeah. Uh, I was able to find that it was founded in 1940, and I believe the incident with the, with the security clearance you mentioned was something around 1950. That's so, correct, yeah. so they'd been around for a while, but these guys bring in lots of money, and the whole thing is to bring brand new, really far out technologies to Israel. To, t- to train people in them at the Technion University and then to actually have it headquartered there. And that's a big, big cash cow for Israel now. In fact, they're probably the most high tech. They're a Silicon Valley country, basically. Uh, with the most edgy kind of, kind of stuff. Uh, for example, I was just seeing on one of their, their sites here that, that this group had raised just recently, and I think a 15 year period or so, one and a half billion dollars. Uh, or one billion of it over a 14 year period. That's a pretty good chunk of change to go through a university to develop this technology. And most of these technologies in, uh, artificial intelligence and advanced materials and things are just the kind of stuff that were said to come from this supposed wreckage. Mm. You know, the storyline of the advanced stuff that came through and people have tried to debunk that may not have any kind of connection. But there's a story there just in the Israeli connection. As well yeah, too, is. Mm-hmm. and uh, are are you familiar with uh, Barry Comish, in, in, and yeah. in and his work? Uh yeah. I, I think was it Return of the Giants? Was that the UFO book that he did?
3: Yes, I think it was. Uh, where about the it UFO flap
2: of 1997, which would have been mm-hmm. what 50 years to the date from uh, uh, from this other activity in Roswell? Uh, mm-hmm. So there is a fascination in their country with this kind of activity. And I really think that's a a lead I uh, hopefully that that you don't let cool off because mm-hmm. I think there's there's got to be some people there that know some more you know this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned the situation about off at Air Force Base, which yeah. the light went on in my head, and then you mentioned it later in the book about it's ironic that this was the place where President Bush fled to when the nine one one event occurred, um
1: having some of us cronies. Yeah, he, care of him. well, he
2: spoke from one of the deep areas where they were trying yeah. to get control of what was going on. And the whole premise of this Collins elite, as I understand it, is that first through Crowley, and then the clincher was when uh, his protege, uh, c- comes along, Jack Parsons, and does this Babylon working out in the desert. I think it was in like January to March of 46. Yeah. When they say they released the Great Whore Babylon, the consort for the Antichrist, into the world. To to create an environment of of discord of uh, di- destabilization to bring on the the eon of Horus um, that it was right around this period of time and we've mentioned on the show a number of times this this book uh, provides extra evidence for hunches that we've had what what little did we cover these topics about the correlation of a lot of interesting events in the mid 40s like the the UFO event that occurred right after this particular event, of course, Aleister Crowley himself died in 1947. Yeah. In December, so he passed the baton sort of at this particular period of time. We had the founding of the nation of Israel in 1948. We have the atomic tests that kick off in 45. I'm I'm sure you're aware of all this, but but we have to say this is a phenomenal period of time which would really give evidence to these guys uh, about this. In fact, even the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947 in which it was uncovered, the ancient book of Enoch, which actually confirms a, at least a one of the latest Christian explanations for what is going on uh, and, and would give further reinforcement that it would be an occult kind of activity. Uh, something that I wanted to ask you about on this was that given the fact that a lot of these workings uh, seem to happen, um, particularly these two key portal events, happen at the end of world wars. Uh, mm-hmm. You have the elemantra working, although it starts, uh, yeah, it January to June of 1918 mm-hmm. when it occurs. The Babylon working happens uh, from January to March 1946. Mm-hmm. And what I wondered your opinion, could could the presuming that there is something tangible here, okay, spiritually going on, given that presumption. Could it be that the mass sacrifice of human lives that happened in these world wars help open these portals? Have you ever uncovered any information that would see that's why they intended to do them at that particular period of time?
3: um, I have to say I haven't uncovered any information on that specific aspect. I mean, what I would say, one of the things that I didn't mention in the book, because it would get into such deep areas and it would actually sort of draw away from the, the central topic of the book one of the areas that was sort of, that I know um, was addressed, although I don't know the extent to which it was addressed, was the idea that that cattle mutilations are somehow connected and that it was, you know, the the cattle mutilations weren't being done as sort of like a biological warfare thing or something like that to test the organs, but it was actually the blood that was needed, like a life Mm -hmm. force, if you like, and it was being used in some sort of weird sacrifices. and And in other words, there were... Groups in the intelligence world that were undertaking the cattle news, but not as many people believe to check for Emerging viruses, but because they were using the blood in some sort of weird ritual that may have been somehow tangentially connected So yeah, that's that's cattle, but we are still talking about Sacrifices somehow being linked to linked with this group
2: Mhm. Well, well, the reason I bring this up too is that even Aleister Crowley himself, in his own writing, says that when you're doing a magical working, the shedding of blood increases the power. Mm -hmm. Uh, To be able to open portals, he says Mm -hmm. by doing an animal like he would sacrifice a lot of cats, that Mm -hmm. had an incredible power. He says if you can get away with a human sacrifice, that increases it that much more. Mm -hmm. And he described the kind of people that were sacrificed. And so other occult writers have always said that this massive bloodshed is something that furthers occult activity Mm -hmm. uh, from evocations, you know, contact with the gods and things like this. Uh, and and in fact, even that teaching sort of opened my eyes some, some, to some teaching in the Bible about what was meant to be done with with some magical evocations talked about there and a massive bloodshed opening portals like the abyss in Revelation chapter nine. So I just wondered if any of these people had you know had brought this up because it seems like quite a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Even the fact that uh, the Paris working, which was another working that mm-hmm. uh, uh, Crow, Crowley had underway, was simultaneous with the year of the birth of uh, Parsons himself. Yeah, and then, yeah, at the, is, yeah. and then, right in the window, of time of the Babylon working is when Crowley dies and passes mm-hmm. on. It almost seems like these people were conjured and then dismissed, uh, mm-hmm. once their work was needed and done, if you, again, if you believe the significance of this kind yeah. of thing. Uh, related to his birth, can you explain, uh, of all people, this minister and the, and the eventual founder or patriarch of Jehovah's Witness, uh, Charles Taze Russell, how does he tie in to this connection with Parsons?
3: You know, this this is sort of a very weird story. And it's, you know, it's one of the things where, you know, I think when we look into it, we, I guess, for some people, you know, the laughter curtain goes up when you talk about demonic angels and me, demonic aliens and things like that.
2: We won't we, laugh at you here, by no, the way. No, well, I know,
3: but, <laughs> but I think mean, some people do. But You're right, meant, sure. What I was, was going to say is, the more you dig into it, you actually find intriguing issues which which are hard to dismiss. Now. You know, you, you mentioned this whole thing about Charles Tate Russell. He was basically a, a prominent early 20th century uh, Christian restorationist. He was a minister from Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and the founder of the Bible student movement, which out of which really the Jehovah's Witnesses emerged. And he made this prediction that the, the countdown to the end of the world would begin on October 2nd, 1914, and that would, date would be when the, the Antichrist would be initiated. And it so happens that October 2nd, 1914 was the day John um, Jack Parsons was born.
2: Mm-hmm. And what so, was the name he called himself?
3: Well, um, Parsons actually, at one point, you know, loudly proclaimed that he was the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have this um, direct connection and all these so called con- uh, coincidences that, when you put them all together, actually seem far more than coincidences.
2: So, what happened? Regarding uh, the UFO events after his untimely death, I think it was in 1952 when yes. he had this mysterious death. Mm-hmm. Um, his wife, or his wife, his mother took her own life immediately after hearing yeah. about it. It was a grisly, just a grisly incident. Yeah. Uh, he suffered horribly in this uh, chemical explosion. Uh, I've read stories that he he and uh, I, th- I think was it was it Cameron actually? that were going to sneak off to Mexico and get away from all this stuff. And yeah. as they were loading their stuff, they got taken out before them. Um, what happened in the in the UFO world shortly after this?
3: Well, in the same way, you know, we can argue that in the wake or during the elementary work, in that this entity Lam appeared, and in the wake of you know Parsons' activities, the flying saucer wave came through. Literally, within a couple of weeks of Parson's death, you had two of the most famous UFO series of events ever when, over the course of two weekends, literally only a couple of weeks after he died, there were multiple intrusions of UFOs all across across the nation's capital, all across washington d c They were tracked on radar, seen by pilots, the military the FBI CIA everybody was following this story because you know these weren 't sort of sightings of weird lights in the sky seen by, you know, somebody out in the fields in Kentucky or whatever, these were literally flying all over the capital. And again, the, the Collins elite concluded that here was a pattern at work that Parsons, who they actually didn't think had just sort of blown himself up in an accident, that he may have been engaged in some other weird rite and ritual, had again actually succeeded at the moment of death. And again, it opened yet another doorway to allow these things through I don't need a greater level, if you like.
2: Hmm. That's, that's very interesting. Uh, are, are you familiar with a, uh, a very popular avant-garde movie called Lucifer Rising? No, I'm not. No. Lucifer Rising was done by a gentleman by the name of Kenneth Anger, who's oh, probably yeah, yeah. one of our most preeminent uh, avant-garde filmmaker of uh, art films and things like this. And he, he was an v- extremely devout follower of Aleister Crowley. Uh, very, very strong. He did, uh, Invocation of My Demon Brother. Marjorie Cameron, who was the mm-hmm. elemental woman who assisted Jack Parsons in the Babylon Working, w- w- was his main star of his he was big movies. With the Rolling Stones, wasn't he? Uh, Mick yeah. Jagger, actually, yeah. was supposed to play Satan, actually, in one of, one of his things. But in Lucifer Rising, which was considered his magnum opus, and ironically even had Bobby Beausoleil, the, uh, the gentleman who was part of the Manson family actually write the music for it. Um, but in the at the end of this, the whole goal is, is to have the raising of Horus, which is what this whole thing of the Babylon working was supposed to be about was the aeon of Horus uh, coming forward and, and raising him, ending the the age of Osiris, the the slave god, um, and that's exactly what you see at the end of Babylon working where Horus is raised, and then you see above the pyramids all of these UFOs appear, Mm -hmm. these flying disks. And the, the whole thing, you know, it's only like 40 minutes long, something like that, but you see this connection of the, there's actual photos of Aleister Crowley in there, and all of these imagery with the UFOs suddenly appearing at this time, once this magical working is done by the sorcerer in it. Mm-hmm. So I can't help but think that some of this this teaching it could be a coincidence but there is some connection with the UFOs and these kind of activity, you know, that that's going on and didn't know if you were familiar with it. Now, if I understand right, the Collins Elite, what we know right now from them in, in the narrative, is that these are people concerned that he is open that Jack Parsons' work has opened a portal that the UFOs are connected, that they're not what they are trying to portray themselves to be, to be little green men from another planet, that yeah. they have an occult thing because there was an occult activity, basically a, a sorcery uh, evocation that actually conjured them with their appearance, or at least that's their their supposition. So now they have money. They're working on an ad hoc basis to interview people in the occult world. Uh, they're trying to find more to collect data to try to figure out what's going on. And the fact that he's dead, I understand, was the big kickoff because they figured he opened the door that now he can't close. Uh, even if they kidnapped him and made him, he's no longer there to do it. So now they got to figure out what That's to deal true. deal
1: with the phenomenon itself.
2: We're back at Future Quake with
1: Doctor Future and Tom. Intrigued about this Richard Duke guy, bionic. Mm-hmm. I was pretty fascinated that you knew the uh, the history there of uh, what was it, Albuquerque? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I almost you're moved there. You're a man of many talents. Had
2: a house picked, well, I'm still trying to find him. <laughs> let, let me know when you see him, so I can. know it. Uh, You know, I, I found several things in this segment very interesting. I'm interested in the Israeli connection. Mm-hmm. These guys, I don't know if there was a formal Mossad at that time or there was a precursor, but they must have been following this guy some time. They had to know his occult background. Yeah. And if so, why? It. Yeah. And I, I get more and more feeling that some of these folks were not the kind of folks that we think as the the idyllic, romanticized Israelis of the Old Testament you know, yeah. the Lord may still use that stuff for whatever purpose, but it's to me they were sort of shaking hands with the devil yeah. in a lot of ways back then, including the Russians. I mean, they were the Russians were their main supporters in the early days. Yeah, you uh, know, that's the one nation that's of one Israel thing
1: that, gets, that gets missed a lot.
2: But this Technion Society is a very, very interesting group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but the other thing about the the portals opening from the wars mm-hmm. that occurred, I think there's got to be something to that. I think thing. Russ would agree with me. The
1: October second, nineteen fourteen, is both as what was it the beginning of the World World War Two or World War One? And well, I don't well you know. that
2: year it started, but the uh, uh, that's when uh, Russell Pastor Russell said that the Antichrist would be born. It and was, then then Parsons, yeah, was, was a very born. day. It was that very day when he was born, yeah. like that. Interesting. But but those actually. workings happen just after both wars. So I just wonder if the massive blood sacrifice of war mm-hmm. actually helps open portals, and maybe that's why the Red Horse wants to spread war mm-hmm. in Revelation, because yeah. it helps but their appearance.
1: That's a very that's a very what used to be known as historic premillennial premillennial position. It sounds like, which is not wrong. I mean, well, I mean nobody, only thing I know, nobody has, I think, the definitive answer. Only thing I know view.
2: is Merv can tell you how to
0: contact the future quake. Yep.
5: Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week
0: during the radio broadcast. We've got to go. All right, let's hit it.
2: Come back for our third segment tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future's always bright. Have a good day.
0: Ciao. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake.
2: Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future.
1: And I'm Tom. It was all about the state of mind, bionic.
2: Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're talking this week to Nick Redfern, the author of a new book called Final Events, with the theme this week of government whistleblowers expose an occult UFO agenda, mm-hmm. and about as far out of Future Quake as you're gonna get.
1: I don't know about as far up, but close. This ties together,
2: this ties together so many topics that we've covered in Future Mm -hmm. Quake and puts a framework on Um, them. Yeah. Um, I want you to be thinking, I'm going to ask you tomorrow what you think about the viability of this theory. Mm -hmm. So I want you to think about that. Till then, uh, let's go to our third segment with Nick Redfern and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. One of the things that they found out a little bit was something unique about what was going on in this area with people who had actually encountered UFOs, either eyewitnessed them or abductees or things like this, and it related to the state of the mind. Uh, what is it about the mind and its state that you talk about in your book as being important for people to have contact with UFOs? It's not well, just necessarily being in the right, like uh, you know, being in Area 51 or being in some – some particular geographical location. There was more to the state of mind, wasn't it, in general?
3: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, if we go back to the early years, sort of early 50s of the whole UFO phenomenon, you know, this was when the whole contactee slash space brother movement took off. And now, you know, people who sort of have a cursory examination of the space brother movement will find that, you know, these people allegedly made contact with very human-looking, long-haired aliens out in the desert. What a lot of people don't realize is that although that's sort of a very simplistic view, many of the experiences of the contactees reportedly occurred in altered states of mind. For example, George Van Tassel, uh, who built the excuse me, Integratron and had his yearly conferences out at Giant Rock in California, um, he, um, some of his contacts were done by what he called thought transference, by what today we would call ESP, Others were, when he would go into like an altered state of mind and actually start channeling um, sort of higher entities, which he perceived as aliens, um, George Hunt Williamson would render himself into like a, a, a semi-hypnotic state and start using Ouija boards. And we also have That's the fact good. that... No, and we also have the fact that George Adamski, who is without doubt the, you know, the, the definitive contactee, His co-author on Flying Saucers have landed his first book, Desmond Leslie. Well, Desmond Leslie's father, Sir Shane Leslie, was deeply involved in the occult and actually was brought up on the teachings of Alistair Crowley. So, in other words, you had all these people entering altered states and contacting their supposed alien entities via Ouija boards and automatic writing and channeling. And then you had the ultimate contact, T. having an indirect link to Crowley via Desmond Leslie. It was all this sort of stuff in the early years that made them think. Hang on, you know, this is there are too many links to the occult for it to be extraterrestrial. You know, why it, would, it was just sort of seen as too suspicious. And then further down the line, you know, they realised that with the abductions, that people seemed to be also rendered into an altered state of mind where they were susceptible to what the group believed was almost like instilled holographic imagery rather than physical flesh-and-blood events with, mm-hmm. you know, knock-on metal UFOs and things like
2: that. Well, I, I don't want somebody to get the misimpression that this is the sum total of somebody who either just took some drugs or closed their eyes and then suddenly told everybody in the room, hey, I just saw some UFOs. Uh, yeah. th- this is the kind of thing where people went into an altered state, many times, sometimes in groups, and actually had group witnessing these activities, not not passing around the drugs, although that also has occurred too, but but actually went into a state where they, they almost sort of visualized or summoned them, and they came. And, and the other thing is that this is not over. This is not just old guys from the 50s doing this. Uh, the Starseed Children reunion is held just down the street from where we're recording this show right now here in Tennessee. Uh, Dr. Richard – Yeah, it may be moved now, but Dr. Richard Boylan, I don't know if you remember him, a coast-to-coast regular – uh, he would lead the group out here where they brought all these indigo children or starseed children, mm-hmm. and they would actually uh, come out here and actually uh, witness apparitions in the sky uh, mm-hmm. through their joint mind states. There uh, there's space brothers who were coming back right right here uh, in, in rural Tennessee. Uh, and in fact, um, when I spoke at the United Nations meeting on religion and spirituality back two years ago, Dr. Mm-hmm. Stephen Greer was talking about his activity with his group. And he's another virtual household name holding Washington press conferences where they would also take l- very large groups of people on the top of hills, go into a similar state of meditation, and they would all swear they all jointly saw large numbers of UFOs appear when they did mm-hmm. this. So it sounds like the same old story. Uh, is continuing, but there's this, this is religious slash spiritual connection that seems to be connected to this, you know, to this kind of conjuring or whatever you might want to call it, uh, to it. Um, now, now you mentioned the Ouija board in there. Um, now the military was even doing their own research themselves on things like that, right? Where they were actually bringing it in or they have channelers come in or other people like that where they, they would look at this technology as a means to find information.
3: Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it, this is one of the things. It's sort of like a double-edged sword, you know, where some of them realize the the dangers involved here, but otherwise, other ones thought, well, you know, there's actually some military advantage potentially, at least, that could be also attained from this. And so, in other words, it was it was almost like, to some of them at least, it was the offer you cannot refuse. That that's literally how it was sort of viewed. Mm-hmm. But if you do you know, if you do go along with it, well, then don't be surprised if things go wrong. So this and is
2: this is the same military that is laughing at people and saying they saw swamp gas when they report to UFOs and sort well, of making it humorous in the they press. Wow, that
1: giant yeah, Ouija board that 20 people are all making sacrifices to. Yeah, well, I, right. th- I
3: think the important thing to remember is, you know, that the government itself isn't sort of a unified entity. Right, right. In other words, you know, for example, if you look at Project Blue Book in the early 50s, They were looking, you know, to determine what UFOs were. We know that the CIA's Robertson panel at the exact same time was looking at the psychological warfare aspects of UFOs and the Collins elite were looking at the demonic angle. So, you know, when one agency says we think this is complete nonsense, I I don't think they may necessarily have been lying. They just may not have been Mm -hmm. aware of some of the advances that another department or another agency had made. And I think that's the important thing to remember, that, you know, sometimes having, um, you know, an agency, if you like, or a, a department doesn't mean that you're clear to know what somebody else is doing. Sure. actually in the same field. So.
4: Well,
2: and, and yeah, you're, you're, I agree with what you're saying, and the point I'm trying to make to our listeners is is that just because you hear some agency of the government say, oh, we looked at that, there's nothing to it, ha, 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 just move on, there's nothing to see here, it d- does not mean that's a definitive answer from the government. Often people will see this and say, oh, you see, our, our, our government has said there's nothing to this, so there's nothing to it. Move on, shelve it. Yeah. When, when they're just not that monolithic and, and wish it could be that easy, uh, that we could move on. But again, many of them are not briefed in, as you say, uh, mm-hmm. to the things and what's going on. Um, there, there's another set of players that you mentioned in the middle of your book, uh, that are doing yet some other things. You just mentioned different groups, you know, in the military CIA may have different angles on it. Uh, there was one called Operation Often, yeah. that was identified. Um, what was the association the Collins elite had with this group and and tell us a little bit about how they delved into the sorcery angle yeah. themselves?
3: Well again, this is sort of another perfect example of how the intelligence community has sort of looked into the realm of the occult in the case of Operation Often although only due to sort of crossover meetings. It wasn't really focused upon UFOs, but it was definitively occult-based. And the, the whole project, if you like, sort of kicked off in the latter part of the 1960s and was sort of an outgrowth of some of the people who were involved in the CIA's mind manipulation programs like MK Ultra. And um, basically what it was, it was the notion of trying to determine if you know, occult activity could be used as a tool of espionage. And so, in other words, um, one of the, although this sounds strange, one of the things that the CIA, who were sort of the funders of Operation often did, was to literally to try and con- uh, to contact the souls of dead CIA agents and see if they could use their souls to literally spy on the Kremlin. I mean, you know, contact them and guide them and direct them. And then through things like Ouija boards, th-
4: That's that's a rotten retirement
2: plan, on. Nick. <laughs> you know? I mean you yeah, can't even is- start collecting your pension at death. You're still on the you know, still, still on, on the, the dolder. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but no, I, I agree. It's it's sort of a very you know, it's um, a strange story, but basically what that, that is what it came down to, the notion of literally using the occult to you know, spy on the enemy if, if you know, uh, wiretaps and agents and things like that wasn't going to work. Well, let's see if we can astrally project the souls of dead agents, you know, to the heart of some military base overseas, that sort of thing. Um, now, where the crossover comes with um, the whole issue of the Collins elite was in relation to the fact that Operation often started digging into all sorts of unusual areas where they would consult with uh, palmists, clairvoyants, demonologists, mediums, fortune tellers, really to you know, to see if they could use them in some way. They actually even had three astrologers on the payroll for about 350 weeks.
4: This, uh, this doesn't
2: sound real no, high-tech. This doesn't sound like wasn't. the frontiers of science, science. This is going retro, old school, rather than the, like the new frontiers of the brain.
3: Yeah, you're quite right. It was really a case of let's look at everything that this field encompasses and let's just try it all and see if it works, so...
2: You know they should have called this Operation Saul because that was the ori- that was <laughs> Operation the ori- Endor. Yeah. yeah, that was the original military program you know where you had the military go in and go to Samuel to try to find out from the dead how how are you going to beat these Philistines out there and they're basically using the same kind of technique, and uh I assume it's just been just as useful for them uh now they had some uh people in fact I guess the most famous magician magician uh which in in England at the time, was was brought in to help this group as well. What were the kind of things that she told um, yeah. this group about what was up with the UFOs?
3: Yeah, well this this was basically a woman named um, Sybil Leek, and Sybil Leek really was sort of a very um, sort of famous English witch, and we know that she was definitely consulted by Operation Often. That's a very verifi- excuse verifiable fact from people connected to Operation Often who've come forward. But this is where we had a, like a crossover between the Collins elite and Operation Often. And according to Sybil Leek, she had uncovered information and reportedly sort of almost like channeled some sort of entity, a demonic entity, basically saying something along the lines of that the, the human race was essentially being harvested, that the earth was like a farm and that the, the whole goal of these entities that masquerade as aliens was to literally harvest human souls, um, and that was the premise. and it was round about this time, I suppose, that the the Collins elites' belief systems really came to be formulated along a more definitively Christian line than um, a more of a definitively occult line. You know, they they took the view that wow, you know, this isn't just negative forces. This is you know, the battle for our souls. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it was based around this particular period with Civil League and various other people and meeting theologians in sort of clandestine situations and getting their views on things but asking them, you know, not to mention who they'd spoken with, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but it was this period that was sort of like a definitively, Grounding period, if you like in this this whole story
2: well, you know it's interesting that you mentioned that they took a more Christian direction because mm-hmm. I, I would have to counter a little bit that um, part part of what they they said in your in your narrative that you in your book was that they were afraid that the Bible didn't wasn 't really telling the whole story in the judeo christian yeah, yeah. worldview and and so that's a while it, un-Christian position it really. sort of sent them Christian but yet Christian plus in that, that, that they were they were unsure that it was really telling the whole story of what was going on uh particularly about what the mission was of these these dark forces as far as being able to harvest souls and I think they were even fearful of of those who were who were Christians uh, being vulnerable to these people but um I I I think that's a lesson for some of our listeners, the fact that what stimulated this was a testimony of a of a witch herself channeling an evil being. And uh, you mentioned in your book that uh, you know, people are asking what would be the motive for for them spilling over the playbook, you know, of the other side. Uh mm-hmm. it's like running from one football team over the next saying, here's our here's our plays we're gonna run. What would be their motive to do that? And I think that's a fair question to ask. Uh, and, and, and part of the supposition was, well, maybe they were just so filled with their innate arrogance and hubris that they they just turned this over. Well, the, the other point could be that this also was, was a deception and that they used their agents to plan a deception that created um, – not, not that there's not something fearful going on and real, but something that's just a subtle departure away from, from other reliable testimony of what's going on because it really made the Collins elite hyper-paranoid, as we see later in your discussion, yeah. and 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 let their minds run with them on something. And, and I'm not disputing that it's something horrible, because I strongly suspected that it is. Yeah. But it did change somewhat, uh, particularly the nature of how they wanted to address it. And I think that's what's critically important. And, and I think if, if one traced that back to influences like a witch uh, conjuring an evil spirit saying it that that really you know they should have had a second look (laughs) it they want to put all their chips on the table on on getting you know uh, the the storyline from this particular source Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, what what kinds of questions did the military when they would see these abductees that had abductions what would they normally ask them about their experiences
3: well, there's actually several things. I mean, it, it's clear from the questions, though, that they were following the sort of the same agendas. One was, had there been any sort of... Or the, did, the, did the person feel there been any sort of bodily separation um, from, I guess, the soul? Um, for example, there was a famous UFO incident in 1973 in Ohio involving the crew of a helicopter who had a very close encounter with a UFO. And afterwards... Um, a number of the personnel who were on the, on the helicopter reported how somebody would call them up from the Pentagon and ask all sorts of questions. Um, had they ever dreamed of body separation? Had they ever dreamed that they were dead? Things like this. And several of the, the people had. Who on, they'd had these sort of weird out-of-body dreams afterwards. And so they were looking at that. They were also looking at whether or not any abductees had had any unusual dreams or met fragments of memories that related to things like the end of the world, Armageddon, nuclear destruction, um, demonic entities grabbing human souls, things like this. So the interesting thing is that at the time, one of the people I interviewed said, you know, they weren't referring to these as alien abductions. And of course, that term wasn't around then in the 70s. They were talking about kidnappings. But the, the scenario was of these entities somehow you know, if they, even if the Air Force or whoever at the time in the early 70s still clung to the idea that they were alien, even they were sort of looking at why or, you know, following this trend that some of these reports seem to involve end-of-the-world scenarios, soul separation, and they were focusing on that. And so, you know, I think this is sort of an, an offshoot of the, of some of the things that they were hearing from other people, you know, they were just trying to take it further and Began to go further and further down that path.
4: Mm -hmm.
2: Now, you know, um, Linda Moulton covered this a lot in in that same book that you referenced. And and it's also a, a thinking that is very supportive of reincarnation. Because it sort of showed that this soul left the body and then it was sort of in waiting to go into another body and, and as I, best I could understand it, the, these evil forces would try to snatch it before it had a chance to redo that and improve itself and use it for its own purposes. So, you know, th- that's where some of these things, if, if these people really believed in Orthodox Christian worldview, could r- really see that there was a disconnect, that they were going to almost have to pick an either or in where this path, they were at a fork in a the row. They could go with Orthodox Christian teaching or something that was very, very distinctly different uh, than Orthodox Christian teaching with this whole thing of, of soul stealing and, and, and things like this.
3: Um, I think yes? What they kind of did, you know, uh, because a number of people said, you know, it seems like they've gone from sort of, you know, interpreting things and recreating things and going from like a swinging from a some aspects of like a fundamentalist type approach and integrating sort of revisionist stuff and all sorts of different things. And I think it is sort of the arrogance of them feeling, well, we know better and this mm-hmm. is how it needs to be rewritten. You know, some people actually say, well, these people can't be credible because they're taking different parts from different viewpoints. And so they clearly don't know what they're talking about. But but my view is that I think it's wrong to say they couldn't get the facts straight. I think it's mm-hmm. the arrogance that actually, Trying to construct some new form of of um, ideology,
4: mm-hmm. I think
3: that's what they were trying to do. It wasn't, it wasn't at all that they didn't have an understanding of it; they did. They just felt that they knew better, and they would uncovered something that no one else had, had found before. So they needed to rewrite it.
2: Right, and, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to uh, to make that point. I'm just trying mm-hmm. to say that uh, m- many of these people sounded like they came from what they understood themselves to be traditional Christian viewpoint of things yes. and that's what took them down that's this correct. path but but when they make these particular decisions they leave orthodox teaching yes. uh and and at least we, we all need to be honest brokers and admit these things i'm not saying we all don't have the right to make yes. those decisions when we do but we need to be upfront about what we're oh, doing yes, that's, when we do yes,
3: it that's a, that's a fair point
2: that that is what they were doing yeah yeah um one of the most fascinating areas that 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 I think you covered on. And, and and one of the things I really like about this is I like this topic when it was briefly brought up in Linda Moulton Howe's book and then the information Ray Boucher forwarded to us, and, and you further advance it. And that's this whole idea about these old texts that these guys in the Collins Elite mm. uh, mentioned, you know, in these old I, – I think I remember them saying, and, and uh, Linda said that you, you had to go, like, in the Ivy League libraries to find some of these books. They're so rare uh, mm-hmm. from – 500 years ago or so uh, on demonology uh, and the demons of ancient Babylon. I think the the Babylonian region they talked about. What did these texts reveal about these ancient cultures and demons Mm. and their possible connection to this? Yeah, You you talked a lot about ancient Babylon and, and why it was such a big deal there.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the interesting areas, you know, that they weren't just speaking with abductees or looking at the, the present-day UFO movement, etc., actually sort of delving a long way back into you know ancient times, and, and did have this sort of obsession almost with, I guess, sort of Babylonian history, feeling that this was somehow all connected. And now, for example, I mean, the, some of the books that they were talking about that the Collins elite supposedly consulted were things like John De- Deacon and John Walker's 1601. Book uh, dialogical discourses of spirits and devils and, and things like this, you know, going back hundreds of years. But what's interesting is that one of the reasons why they focus so much upon sort of ancient Babylonia was because the whole area, you know, a couple of thousand years ago, was steeped in belief systems about predatory supernatural entities that would invade people's bedrooms in the night. That would sort of engage in sexual relations, that would steal babies. This is the Babylonian
2: people, the Babylonian citizens experience this, yes.
3: Yeah, and so, in other words, you know, it sort of parallels, but in a demonic fashion, what we hear in ufology today with this obsession with, you know, sexual reproduction and and babies and things like this and hybrids. And one of the interesting things is that a number of these entities uh, would appear in the form of owls. Now, Mm. if you look into in today's Mm -hmm. uh, alien abduction stories, we find a lot of examples where people driving home, something strange happens, they go to bed and in the middle of the night, they remember seeing this huge tall, like five foot tall owl stood in the middle of the road, which clearly, you know, could not happen, but it was almost like a cover story. And then afterwards, this alien abduction scenario comes tumbling out like it was a screen memory. But the Collins elite were sort of perturbed but interested as well by the fact that Owl seemed to play a, a significant role in quite a few alien abduction stories today, but also quite a few sort of paranormal stories from ancient Babylon. And that's one of the reasons they consulted so many of these scripts to essentially see if there was a way of determining if there was a direct correlation. And, and they came to con- the conclusion that there was, that it really was a case that what people were seeing 2,000 years ago was or today? Sorry, was a, mani- a modern day manifestation of what people were seeing back then. But it was the the way it appeared. It sort of literally its literal appearance was different. You know, back then it, it did look like demons. Today it did look like aliens in nuts and bolts craft. But it was all like a holographic deception, if you like.
4: Uh,
2: you know, it's it's ironic, but this actually uh, what you just described is consistent with the narrative in the Bible about this same region. I don't know how much you studied it, but if you go back and read Revelation 18 about the great city of Babylon, and it talks about the, um, the geography there, you know, there's a lot talked about the Tigris and Euphrates, but really, planet geographically, there's also sort of a metaphorical view of Babylon in that book, but, um, it uh, it also relates to this geography, and it says that this area, and it's also mirrored, by the way, in Isaiah 47, I believe, where, where the same words are used, that it says this area of Babylon by the Tigers and Euphrates are the haunt of demons and every foul and unclean beast, and it even mentions it as a haunt of the screech owl. Mm-hmm. And it mentions the owl particularly is a place where this where this is located and this mm-hmm. demon connection uh, to this particular area. so i I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you might want to take a peek at that oh, that yeah. that the Bible is consistent with that uh, mm-hmm. correlation and in fact, um, there are um, demons or angelic demon type beings extremely powerful that are called out of those rivers. In the last days, in the biblical narrative, uh, to bring the armies to battle uh, uh, for the final battle. They they go and bring the kings of the east and other things like this. They assemble an army that
1: kills a large part of the world.
2: We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future.
1: And Tom, I think uh, Heresy Hunter might have called me real quick. Bionic. Uh
2: Is this because uh, some of the path the uh, Collins elite are beginning to take in our discussions?
1: Yeah. You know, it's like when you start adding stuff to the Bible going, the Bible's true. Plus a bunch of other stuff, man,
2: well, we all have a temptation for that in this kind of stuff. There's always a temptation well there's there it's interesting you mentioned that that's become
1: that's become a big topic of late. you know mm-hmm. people talking extensively at length about breeding programs and all of that stuff and reciting and referring to matthew twenty four matthew twenty four just there's nowhere in there it talks of, where does it tell me about like mm. breeding pods and you know the well, dark side of the moon where they have tanks where they're breeding hybrids it's it's not in there. Well, Sorry.
2: you know, the the thing is, when people have a zeal to want to see see what's up, mm-hmm. it's it's encouraging. We got to stick close to the Bible in it, yeah. Because I think the cons elite, it's going to be their own undoing mm-hmm. with what we've heard talking about. But someone else who won't mess you up though is Merv, who can tell you how to contact us. At Future quake. Mm-hmm.
5: Future quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. during the radio broadcast.
2: We've got one more segment tomorrow. Yeah. We'll try to wrap it up and I want to know what you think about some of the stuff. All right. Uh, come back tomorrow for our last segment. Until then we hope your future's always bright. Have a good day.
4: Right.
0: Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. 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 quake.
2: Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future.
1: And Tom, this was some classic Future Quake thus far. Bionic. That's
2: what I've been saying all
1: along. Yeah, man. I and agree.
2: That's, that's because uh, this week we've been having Nick Redfern, the author of the book Final Events, talking about government whistleblowers exposed an occult UFO agenda. Mm-hmm. And uh, so glad to have Nick on. He's a great guest. Love to have him back some more. Mm-hmm. Always talks about fascinating things. Yep. But this one is just really, because of the, the the Christian connection, the occult connection, religious kind of thing, mm-hmm. it's just ideal for us to talk to on this show. Mm-hmm. Recommend everybody get the book at NickRedford.com. Mm-hmm. Let us know your thoughts from listening to this show and other things. Um, but let's go to our last segment and hear what he has to say in closing, yep. and then we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quick. There's a strong connection of the Bible with them actually being resident even underneath the water. And I know you talk a little bit about the sea and about, uh, their burial under the water. And of course, in the Bible, for, for Bible students of this thing, um, it's, it's pretty well believed that Tartarus, the abode of the dead talked about in the book of Jude yeah. and elsewhere where the, where the angels who did came down and did these kind of abduction experiments in Genesis six is a place located underneath the sea. Uh, and in fact, that's what they believed. In fact, uh, the, uh, the Jewish people at the, at the time of Jesus were, were really afraid of the sea, even the Sea of Galilee, because they believed there were demon spirits that were connected to it, and particularly over in the Decapolis, where they had the, uh, the, 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 the demoniac over there. And they believed that affected them. when that big storm came up, when Jesus had to come calm the waters, they actually believed that that was the demon spirits that were trying to impede them in their mission. So, uh, you know, th- this goes back a long way, this particular, uh, kind of connection. Mm-hmm. Now, back to a, uh, the, the, the Roswell, the seminal event, the, the, the Roswell occurrence, where there were reports from a number of people of physical things left behind. So it wasn't just, uh, you know, some visual manifestation mm-hmm. that occurred or in the mind. There's, there's something you feel in touch. What was the connection you showed to how this kind of physical stuff had a connection to activities at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is the old haunt where I used to work.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, um, this actually came to me via the Collins Elite, but also this, this exact same story was given to Ray, the Ray Boucher. the idea that, yes, something happened at Roswell, but the the collective opinion of the Collins Elite was that it was like a Trojan horse, that there never actually was a, quote, literal crash at Roswell. Their, their conclusion, and this was actually told to Ray by his two physicists, was that the the so-called memory metal found in the New Mexico desert wasn't evidence of a crash. They believed it was literally deceptively placed there some staged to look like a crash incident. And it was essentially a kind of, almost like a demonic alchemy is probably the best way to describe it, where I guess using what may have been some sort of ancient alchemy, but also equally with a some sort of highly advanced technology we don't understand, um, that matter had literally been plucked and manipulated into the form of the memory metal, then, as I said, carefully staged and dropped on the, uh, the desert floor, knowing that we would pick it up, realizing it was particularly unique, and interpret that it would be something extraterrestrial. And according to one of the, most of the documents, if not all the documents I reproduced in the book, have been declassified through the Freedom of Information Act. One that hasn't is one that was sort of given to me, like a, an off-the-record document, if you like. And this talks about how using something that the document refers to as the Parsons technique, which it's clear that the people who the reports meant for knew what that was because it doesn't elaborate on what it is specifically. Which you know, if they knew all about it, is understandable. Um, but it talks about how using the Parsons technique, supposedly personnel at Wright Patterson had actually created or manifested probably very similar materials to those found at roswell and again this sort of ties in with what ray boucher was told back in 91 that this material had been plucked from somewhere and fashioned to where it would be clear to us that it was purely that it was literally something not of this earth if you like and they also concluded the same with the bodies found at roswell they they didn't dispute that as they call them in the book um in the document in the book. Biological materials were found at Roswell. But they didn't believe these bodies ever actually had any form of life. They kind of viewed them as like a, a highly advanced jackalope, you know, the idea of like a created creature that never lived. And they basically came to this conclusion for two reasons. One, there's a, a long-standing story that at the time that Jack Parsons was killed, he was trying to create and conjure up a little creature known as a homunculus,
4: uh-huh. which
3: essentially is a small... human-like being imbued with magical powers. On top of that, um, Jack Parsons, a man who was a father figure to Parsons, was uh, Dr. Theodore von Kármán, another famous and legendary rocket expert. And von Kármán had a relative who in the 1600s in Prague was involved, allegedly, according to the story, in the the manifestation and creation of a golem, again, sort of a manufactured life form. And for the Collins elite, the fact that, Parsons was trying to create the homunculus that one of his closest friends and a father figure who was also linked with how to animate non-animate life forms and the fact, you know, that Parsons was tied in with Roswell and Goddard. They concluded that this was all part of some sort of demonic deception all focused upon Roswell.
2: Hmm. Well, uh, you you know, by the way, there's a famous movie, The Golem, uh, that was um, a silent movie. Yeah, uh, That was very important. And it's now in public domain. You can get it at archive.org. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not. Uh, but yes, I
3: have. It was a long time ago, but I've seen it. Yeah.
2: Uh, you know, this whole thing, this, this conjuring, uh, this information became back into the more public consciousness during the age of spiritualism when, it, when the mm-hmm. rise of it. One of, one of the most impressive books I ever read was a book called Earth's Earliest Ages by a mm-hmm. fellow, George Pembert. Which I think you'd be fascinated to read, it was 1876, about this. And he talks earlier about he and some of his distinguished colleagues of his that were, you know, in the well respected society who had actually seen some small creatures like this created or reported they had in a laboratory. Uh, Charles Williams, who was one of the inklings along with C.S. Lewis, you know, and Jared Tolkien, his writing was pretty far out. And he actually talked about these kind of subjects too. Uh, in, in his writing as well But you know what it really reminds me of Is uh, Something that's always made people scratch their head In the Bible uh, In in the last days when it talks about The beast and the false prophet Giving breath to an image Of the beast mm-hmm. And suddenly this beast can talk And it, mm-hmm. it makes everybody worship The beast and it says that this image uh, Is placed inside The Holy of Holies in the temple and suddenly it's animated and given life. Uh, and this story sounds just exactly like the kind of thing you're talking about, mm-hmm. is that w- w- when this unholy power is at its zenith, it's able to actually cause some kind of animation to some limited degree, possibly conjure material. Uh, you know, same back to the age of spiritualism, as you know, some of the more credible events that have been reported as spiritualism, seances, channelings, actually produce something called ectoplasm. Yes. Well and of course there was lots of you know most of those cases were 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 charades and they were proven to be frauds but there there were cases where physical material actually manifested out of the ether mm-hmm. uh you know and people were very respectable people reported that they saw it touched it it was something mm-hmm. physical so I don't think any of this you know surprised us very much you mentioned von karman you know there's another guy that was a key player in the space program and that's werner von braun yeah. and uh, I believe he also made claims to his personal assistant, was assistant throughout his life, did he not, that uh, that he believed that there was something re- regarding UFOs and other life oh, and yeah. something very secret, that he was, yeah. uh, and, and I'm not sure what all he told the assistant, if the assistant has said everything of what they were told other than, than acknowledge that he said that on his deathbed.
3: Oh yeah, I mean, this is one of the interesting things is that a lot of the formative players in the world of rocketry and the intelligence community in this particular time period you know, either had these sort of weird links with the world of the occults, or after they'd been exposed to, you know, certain aspects of the intelligence world, started talking about their beliefs that, you know, the the UFO phenomenon, etc. Um, so I think, you know, in that respect, you know, we have to wonder why, you know, were they told something? Did they come to various conclusions? It's, You know, it's very difficult to say. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, I think... It's, something's going on we've seen a pattern put it that way
2: I find it interesting when you talk about space to think mm-hmm. about some of the, the um, conjectures and the data brought forward in the book Dark Mission by, by Mike yeah, yeah. Bear and Richard Hoagland where they emphasized that I believe every astronaut who stood on the moon as well as every bishop commander was a 33rd degree Freemason that they've been yeah. able to verify that that they were a part of two lodges either the lodge at Cape Canaveral or the one in Washington D.C. And uh something else that rang a bell from that book was that they mentioned when when it was founded, of course, it was a civilian agency, NASA, but there was a position created of a person that was a liaison with the Department of Defense, and uh NASA, who basically was the gatekeeper of data that had the opportunity, and this was by statute, anything that was visualized in the heavens or on these other planets or whatever was reviewed first by this person, decided if it had defense purposes. Uh, before it was presented on to the American public, and of mm-hmm. course it's very curious when when you find out that the original footage that all the Americans saw the Apollo landings was actually not the original footage. It was something shot off a TV. Mm-hmm. It wasn't wasn't brought a direct transmission from the moon. So to get get your mind wondering about these kind of things, but yeah. but there's this weird connection to Freemasonry to you know the 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 little Freemason act that they did on the moon when they did this. Mm-hmm. It just adds darker and darker pictures to what's going on you know in this overall program of the of of the space program as you as you bring up um bringing it up to today um what is the main focus of the Collins elite today? I, you know, your book sort of took a, a little bit of a left turn in the last 20 pages or so. I thought it was going a certain direction. And then I think there was a Mr. Manners, another person that you were putting in contact with and had sort of a, a, a hurried meeting there in, in Las Vegas with you. Uh, and, and, and he threw something that was very disturbing about the Collins elite themselves, was it not?
3: Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, you know, in the early years, The panel through the 70s and part of the 80s, their goal was on trying to determine what was going on and, I guess, how to deal with it, um, you know, and and understand it. But the story I got was that in later years and certainly to the present day now, that much of the work is either on hold or closed down because they feel they've they've concluded and, you know, reached um, a final conclusion as to what they believe is going on. And they don't feel there's any need to research the phenomenon or the subject anymore because they know that ancient prophecies are, that are foretold are going to come true. That's their conclusion. But what they, where he got controversial was in respect to how they felt was the best way to combat this sort of onslaught, if you like. Um, their view was that, or conclusion, was that these entities can be held at bay by denial of their existence, Um, excuse me, or having like a strong um, Christian belief. Um, And they were concerned that if people moved away from Christianity, that it would actually allow these entities to move in and, you know, en masse and, and, and swamp us, basically. And they felt that if people were moving away or they weren't on the right map, if you like, the right right path of Christianity that they had arguably sort of changed and modified to their own ways, that it was important that they create it, you know, that they put people on the right path as they saw it. And the whole idea was that they were even not against the idea of like using sophisticated holograms in the sky to create religious imagery to try and convince people that, you know, that you better follow a Christian path other or else and their view was that if you that it was worth the sacrifice to take to deceive people if it was going to instill a deep christian belief that would keep these entities at bay again it was sort of like a double-edged sword but the people i spoke with said they moved away from the project purely and simply because they felt this was the wrong approach to take trying to keep one deception at bay via the use of another deception on their part now to what extent that could actually be achieved. You know, everybody was careful to point out to me that this wasn't like a thing where all the satellites were in place, you know, and there was gonna be these huge holograms appear. It was more along the lines of a round table PowerPoint type situation where, you know, people would be discussing, well, is this feasible? Could it be done? Mm -hmm. Should we do it? But this was enough to make them move away from it. The people I interviewed felt things had crossed the line where, you know, you try and keep the demons at bay by by lying to the population, if you like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was, if, w- which is the worst evil. So.
2: If I remember, the, the people who met with you, they said this was not the Christianity they were taught. And they believed that this whole idea was a departure from true Christianity. Yes, So, yes, that's, right. so, so uh, that's what makes this story so multi-dimensional and so intriguing. Who's if, telling the truth? Well, yeah. you, you, see, that's a whole other issue, is that if, if all of this or part of this is true or deception... Uh, the, the last people you met with could be lying to you. The original Collins people could be lying to you. All of them or none of them. But yeah. if taken at face value of what they said, you have this initial group of the Collins elite who, who – and I would expect, I would opine that they're probably mostly on the right track in seeing this mm-hmm. because I think the data even suggests more something of an interdimensional nature rather than a long-distance uh involvement with people or entities. But then they take this, and, and suddenly their paranoia and, – and, and I think where they went wrong is they took some of these dark sources of information as is, is, is the ones who were trying to explain to them what was going on. In other words, they were going to the very people they were fearful of and asking them what their own plans were, which which I think common sense would tell you that that would be something that should give you pause. But anyway, that led them into extreme paranoia and to sort of cross the Rubicon of of being willing to use the devil's playbook, uh, literally yeah. and figuratively, to use deception for people's own good, which unfortunately yeah. I think has happened in, in religion many times. As someone who who is very de- devout in my beliefs, I still have to acknowledge that in times in the past in organized religion, this things like this have been done, and it needs to be exposed. Uh, mm-hmm. When I thought of this thing, I thought of these Marian apparitions that are reported around the world, oh, yeah. and the impact... That it has on on the devotees of Mary uh, in these kind of things, and how how something like this could be pulled off with a group like that. Uh, of course, there's a big in, in the community of, of the people who uh, listen to and are involved and in guests on our show. There's always been big debates about what really went on in these events. Were these something that were staged? Was it demonic? Was it something that was done by some third party as a you know a, a charade or something? Whatever. But that just shows that that gives you a little taste of what the response of the people would be if people start pulling strings like this. And it reinforces our position that we live in a time of extreme deception. Uh, and it's not hard to get information these days. You you proved that we live in an age of the Internet where where someone, an individual like yourself, can do a lot of fact-finding. You can get online, find out people's phone numbers, connections, other kind of things to do it. But being able to discern truth, that's the problem that we have today. Yeah. It's not getting information, but it's it's confirming truth. And, uh, uh, you know, we've we we we've, we've come down on the path that we have to look for external health to be able to discern that kind of truth, because with the best of reasoning that we have and, and capabilities, we're limited. We are vulnerable by the information that's presented to us, uh, you know, to be able to process this. And I... I have to ask this because this sort of leads me to a natural question. Your book, overwhelmingly, and you know, your career has been sort of an unbiased journalist who just reports just the facts, whether it's these strange 14 topics or whatever you cover. But in this particular book, it's noted that the overwhelming majority of the content has spiritual or religious overtones. I mean, much of it is very, very overt in the subject matter. And I just wondered, having covered all this and the shocking information you found, one revelation after another, has this story and experience impacted your personal religious beliefs at all? And um, and and you know, what's your belief as to the rest of the story?
3: Well, I mean, it, I, I don't think it has, but only from the only because I I'm the sort of person where with any story I've ever investigated in the whole UFO subject, I'm very cautious about trying to come to a conclusion before I know exactly what's going on. For example, in 2005, you know, I wrote a book, Body Snatchers in the Desert, right. which looked at a, the issue of Roswell, but from the perspective of like a classified military experiment. Now, you know, that didn't sort of have a, a life-changing effect on my views on Roswell, because I've always been open to the fact that there are so many halls and mirrors within this arena that it would be sort of... I won't say reckless, but it would I need to this is just for me at least, you know, I need to sort of be careful in my mind as to how I view a subject or how my views are changed by when so much of it is sort of Hall and Mirrors based. And so for that reason, you know, I I don't dispute or, you know, write anything off. I, I just like to try and gather as much evidence before I try and reach any form of conclusion, so.
2: Uh, Are you you still at a point where you're far from reaching conclusions on these kind of topics?
3: Um, No, I mean, I actually agree with the Collins elite on several key issues, regardless of the origin. There's no doubt in my mind that the whole UFO phenomenon is deceptive and manipulative. Mm -hmm. And I think it has, over the centuries, possibly longer, appeared in different incarnations. You know, the Mm -hmm. idea that, you know, a lot of people who sort of take a strictly extraterrestrial approach... Take the view that the, the people, when people said they saw goblins or jinns right. and things like that hundreds and thousands of years ago, that they were just interpreting seeing aliens. But my view, which, you know, is sort of like a valet keel approach, is that people who said they saw jinns literally saw jinns. People who said they saw goblins literally mm-hmm. saw goblins, and we today literally see what look like aliens. In other words... So who do you think is the, the real... The...
2: Yeah, who do you think is the real reality then? Once you go behind the curtains of these manifestations, uh, obviously if it's deception, they're intelligences, so they're intently well, deceiving us. What do you think is the real reality behind the curtain of this I, th- I think the
3: reality is that this, these entities are predatory in nature, and... You know, it's like, for example, people delve into a lot of these things, and particularly you know, people get involved in Ouija boards and occult groups, things start to go wrong in their lives. There's no doubt about that. It's like something gets their grips into them. You know, and I speculate sometimes on the idea that the Collins Elite came to, the idea that perhaps there is something, you know, like an emotional feeding almost,
4: mm-hmm. you know,
3: like a, like a parasitic type entity, but... You know, I think that's an intriguing scenario, but where I actually fully agree is that the phenomenon is deceptive and manipulative and is sort of ever-changing to sort of further deceive us, and, and but also to sort of make – it mirrors what we accept as reality you know, in the relevant time mm-hmm. period as well.
2: Does it ever cause any fear or concern for yourself when you read these things because mm-hmm. of what you don't know about them, how that could ever impact you or your family?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a very valid point. You know, when you're dealing with the unknown, you know, all bets are off as to what the the result could be. And, you know, it goes far beyond, oh, this is, you know, like an X-Files type amazing, fantastic story with lots of intrigue to, wow, you know, you're dealing in some pretty dark areas. And I think anybody who approaches something like this and is blasé about it, you know, they're foolish. Mm-hmm. You know, you you need to take it very, very seriously and, and tread carefully. And if you're in any way hesitant, you know, don't don't get in the water, so to speak.
2: Mm-hmm. And are you committed to get to the bottom line, to your own satisfaction, to figure out what it is?
3: Yes. I mean, you know, my goal with the whole UFO subject is to resolve what's going on. And I think at the end of the day, there could actually be several things going on.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, you know, it may not be just one answer, but I think... You know, if we're going to go so far into it, to kind of give up now would be kind of stupid.
4: Um,
3: <laughs> you know, I yeah. I I want Tell us what you really feel. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, the answers may not be good, right. but that doesn't stop me wanting to get the answers, you know.
2: So. Well, in closing, and I thank you for being with us for this length mm-hmm. of time. I want to thank you and, uh, one additional thank you, and that is for including some people who have been very helpful to us. In your book, uh, and it shows how open-minded you are and you're looking for answers, that you included people like Guy Malone and Joe Jordan and Mike Kaiser, Dr. Michael Heiser. Uh, the, the, they have sort of gone against the prevailing stream, as you know, in ufology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think they've tried to be productive in what they've done and constructive. Yeah, and uh, have really they have shown their commitment. They've certainly not done it to make a lot of money. Uh, I've not done it because that's where 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 the big money and the flow is. Um and and their conference, the the Ancient of Days conference there in Roswell every year has been something very influential to us. And uh had the privilege of both of us speaking of there us different speaking. years, yeah. yeah, at that mm-hmm. conference. And I uh, really appreciate your inclusion. And I want to appreciate you doing a very, very informative book that I think will really be used for us to help interpret other external data that comes down the line that we hear in the news or other things. We'll be mm-hmm. looking through the lens of what you've uncovered. And I hope you're not going to let your leads go totally cold in this. I hope, I hope you oh, will no, see no, new. I'm...
3: Actually, I've already followed up on one story where somebody um, reportedly knew of, of a group within the U.S. Army that was actually trying to almost like cap, cap, literally capture a gin. It wasn't like <laughs> oh. it wasn't like it wasn't like related to the whole yeah. the whole scenario. It was, like it was big... literally they were like a, just trying to capture a gin. I mean, oh, it was like a and... very bizarre project.
2: Uh, how can our listeners get your book and follow up on your research?
3: Um, Well, it's available um, from all good book-selling outlets like Barnes & Noble, Borders, Amazon. Um, I have a website, nickredfern.com, where people can contact me direct. And um, I always try and usually succeed in replying on the same day that people write to me. I I don't like to not reply or leave people hanging. So if anybody's got any questions or just wants to offer advice, opinions, or if anybody's listening, who's part of the Collins
2: Elite, get in touch. So. Uh, and they can get your book through that portal, through nickredford.com? They can be led through yes. that to a link? Yes,
3: yeah, to Amazon, Yeah.
2: Great. Well, we're, we'll put that link, with your permission, up here with the okay. show on futurequake.com. I want to right, thank, thank you, you so much. Please don't hang up the phone yet, but I want to say okay. goodbye for our recorded interview. And thank you so much for joining us here on FutureQuake, and please come back ag- again soon here.
3: I'll be happy to. Thanks, guys.
2: We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future.
1: And Tom, interesting stuff. Bionic.
2: So let me ask you, what do you think about this? Okay. Do you think they're well, telling the truth? Does it okay, make well, in 15
1: seconds, yeah. uh, what's going on is that they may, they certainly have hit on what I believe is sort of the truthful aspects, you know, that uh-huh. this is in fact a spiritual manifestation, uh-huh. but they made the classic Gnostic mistake of going beyond what the Bible says and interpreting extra uh-huh. information in there where the data does not support it. Now,
2: that's not very open minded. Tom why do you think everything in reality I'm has je- to stick with the Bible? Well, cuz I'm what zealous for a- truth.
1: Other than that, I mean, uh so uh
2: let, Well, let, can I can I mention a suggestion on that? Yeah. What what are they seeing as an alternative to the Bible for truth, for truth? A witch yeah. who was channeling a demon.
1: Yeah, I was going to say the whole the whole Believing strange testimonies of non-believers and, yeah. and interpreting, again, interpreting stuff that's in the Bible that just isn't there. You see, that's yeah. a classic thing that you see a lot of time in mm-hmm. the real prophecy-heavy circles, you know. It's and like, the
2: sad thing is much of the story could very well be true, mm-hmm. but that one little thing would detour their plan of attack. Yeah, it actually serve the interest yeah, yeah. of the dark sides rather than combat it's it like a, because a, of a little Judas Iscariot little u turns that they picked. Yeah. Uh, in closing, I'd just like to tell everybody to pray for Nick Redford, pray mm-hmm. for his protection and safety. Yep. He's dealing with pretty scary stuff, and that's one thing we as Christians can do: is pray that uh, he could be in God's protection and care. Mm-hmm. Uh, Merv, would you tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake?
5: Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Doctor Future and Tom Bionic at Doctor at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com tell us your name city and radio station or internet and if we can use your name on air comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome dr future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast
0: we gotta go
2: all right come back tomorrow for tomorrow's tremors let us know what you know about what you think about this show until then we hope your futures always bright
0: have a good day bye Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.
4: Welcome
0: to the Future
1: Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Let's use the magic eight ball to identify the quote unquote terrorists. Bionic.
2: I'm going to predict that's foreshadowing.
1: Maybe. Yeah.
2: <laughs> what would give you that idea? Just call me the Edgar Casey of Future Quake. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you today on Friday for Future Quake show. Um, Fridays are different. Mondays mm. or Thursdays, we typically have our interviews with our special guests, like we had this week. Uh, Friday is what? What is special about Friday, Tom Bionic?
1: Friday is usually trash day, isn't it?
2: Well, in in the uh, Doctor Future household, yes.
1: Okay. Well, what else?
2: Uh, it's Tomorrow's Tremors or Today's Review of the Future's News.
1: Very good. You said it right. You set me up for that.
2: <laughs> so, we're going to review some news today, and uh, would you like to begin, or would you like me to?
1: Um, Why don't you go ahead and Are you sure? fire it off? Yeah. Okay.
2: Well, this is an interesting story. Um, y- you know, I'm sure some listeners, although I really don't get emails on this so much, but... Uh, Probably listeners think that uh, I go overboard in championing the cause of people who get a lot of uh, criticism in the Christian community, like people of certain individual religious faiths as a whole, a mm-hmm. block of people, whether it be the Middle Eastern people or Muslims or whatever. Not that I'm encouraging anyone to become a Muslim or that they, you know, I want them to make that. I want them all to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I just think that it's not Jesus' way to take a whole group of people and single them out. I don't see well, really examples of that. I mean. Oh, here you go again. But I want to be fair. Yeah. Now, we don't read a lot of stuff about um, the Islamic people, the terrorist, Middle Eastern kind of people attacking Israel because mainstream Christian media does a pretty good job of covering that. I think mm-hmm. they cover it very well. There's no reason for us to be redundant. We just try to provide other side of things. Yeah. But um, you know, we believe that the Lord has a plan for the people of israel and and things going on but let me just read this story this is a very interesting one it comes from i think a somewhat younger person on the inside in iran mm-hmm. uh it's from a website that's also very interesting called save the Males.ca. it's uh henry mccow is mm-hmm. a very interesting guy uh th- this is a a story called iran can also controlled by satanist and I think this really gets to where, where I sort of am coming from. My understanding
1: that Iran is controlled by states. Well, not
2: just Iran, but a whole lot of people.
1: Yeah, all okay? the major governments of the world. And I don't. Yeah, I, it's it, the
2: big. And ladies and yeah, gentlemen, if you ever sure. wonder, like, what in the world is is he up to? I won't implicate you, but you know, where 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 is he thinking in all this? And these shows he has on the topics, it seems to me. That what we find in the world, the more you and I have studied it over the years on Future Quake, it's not so much that there are massive, like a certain ethnic group or certain religious type or whatever, that in bulk is the sum total enemy, but there's always some kind of elite, wealthy, powerful elite within mm-hmm. these different segments that basically does things even against the rank and file of their people, but for their own personal interest. Uh, mm-hmm. They may have selfish financial interest, they may have spiritual occult interest. But it always seems that it's like Democrats and Republicans have some really rotten people many times running in positions of power in our group. People in America, people in Israel, people in the Islamic countries, people in all these different places have a certain group that always seem like they pulled the trigger. And I think that's where we really need to focus our attention. Mm-hmm. And that's that's sort of where this story comes from. Uh, this person says, uh, I live in Iran and have heard Ahmadinejad discussing the need for world order and global governance. I've also heard that his handler, Ayatollah uh, Mezba Yazdi, is well connected to the British Secret Service. Hmm. I've read many other things about that line as well. Yeah. He says, quite frankly, these people are leading the country to a total financial meltdown, setting the stage for acquisition. Uh, of the state by the world financial elite. The public are told to prepare for shortages and street riots. Again, this is from an Iranian on the inside, okay? Mm-hmm. It says, um, from the very beginning of the Islamic Revolution, key positions such as the judiciary were handed over to mullahs who had no experience in running the country. Commanders of the military, engineers, and doctors who opposed the regime were hanged because they were, quote, enemies of Allah. The Islamic Revolution of Iran had nothing to do with Islam. Just like any other revolution of recent history, it was basically aimed at handing power to a few individuals. In the case of Iran's 1979 revolution, the state was handed over to the Khomeini cult, a Muslim brotherhood group which has direct links with foreign intelligence agencies. One must not be so naive as to believe Iran is an opposition against the New World Order. We have TV shows made every year and fed to the public on the anniversary of the Islamic Revolution, showing the public that before that revolution, Freemasons ran the show. It's very difficult for me to believe the notion that the British who fought Mosaddegh so vis- uh, uh, vigorously, and he was the one who was the popularly elected guy that mm-hmm. Americans and British overthrew, mm-hmm. uh, would suddenly give up Iranian oil and let the Mullahs take over the country's oil resources. Basically just hand it over. It says the true story is that the British instigated the Islamic revolution of Khomeini. The objective was to control Iran's energy by weakening it, reduce the Iranians to hunger, and thus destroy Iran's religious and family-oriented society. Many of our grand Ayatollahs are also Freemasons, the Ayatollahs. That's interesting. Members of the Muslim Brotherhood, and I have reliable sources that tell me they have trips to London every few months to get their orders. One of the powerful figures of the cult regime of Iran is Ayatollah Mezbayazdi. Yazdi. He is the leader... Of a very powerful cult called the Hagani School. Mm-hmm. Uh, member, yeah, members include Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, a top student of Mesma, commanders of the Revolutionary Guards, the Bazik militia, lawyers, judges, and heads of major news prints. So it's their own little conspiracy group. Mm-hmm. We have evidence that the same group was behind last year's election fraud and also the harsh crisis, crisis management, which came after the election that resulted to many deaths, arrests, and many newspaper outlets being shut down. Ahmadinejad's internal objective is to hand over power to members of the cult. Multi-billion dollar enterprises were also state-owned, which were state-owned, are now owned by the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards. Also infrastructural projects, oil fields, housing projects, and many others are awarded to the IRGC. Any opposition such as the Green Movement or worker strikes are handled by the IRGC's secret service and the Bajik militia. For outsiders, Ahmadinejad may pose as a brave leader who dares deny the Holocaust or challenge events of 9 one He enjoys the kind of security that Obama does in New York City, and he has the chance to sit down and talk with all the major media outlets in the United States. Meanwhile, it's noteworthy that after returning from the U.N. General Assembly, Ahmadinejad was due to address the students of Tehran University, but the plan was canceled unexpectedly. The reason is that the man who enjoys publicity in the U.S. does not have the guts to face Iranian students. He simply fears that his presence might spark unrest in the university and destroy all the, quote, achievements that he gained from his trip to the U.S.A. On the same day, Ayatollah Khomeini was due uh, to visit the city of Qom, but his trip was canceled due to his unpopularity amongst top religious figures and their unwillingness to attend his welcoming ceremony. Wow. Okay, so the Iranian leadership are... Are not the, like the government much. leadership. Yeah. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, I'm not sure if Ayatollah Khomeini is a member of the cult, but we do know that his chief of staff is a member. Therefore, the flow of information to the leader is controlled by the IRGC secret service. Subsequently, his decisions and speeches are against the opposition. Khomeini supports developments in sciences and technologies that can guarantee the survival of the cult regime. Meanwhile, he doesn't favor modernization of the country's economy, and he is truly opposes raising people's living standards. Uh, to me, he is in line with the British method of controlling masses through hardship. Um, just finishing here. Iranian people are currently experiencing difficult times, and the sad news is that they are told by government officials to prepare for even worse. We're experiencing high inflation rates and high unemployment. Oil revenue has fallen in the latest round of sanctions on banking and energy sectors, has made life very difficult for businesses. For example, in order to meet local demand for fuel, refineries are told to drastically reduce their industrial chemical productions and to refine fuel instead. Businesses are limited to telegraphic transaction for foreign trade. Therefore, foreign currency is in high demand, resulting in higher prices on good imports. Making matters even worse, the incompetent and inexperienced government of Ahmadinejad is planning to overhaul the economy by increasing taxes on energy. Iran's inefficient economy has caused serious social problems for families and especially the younger generation. To name a few of our social programs, uh, problems, we have the world's highest drug addicts based on a U.N. report. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. High divorce and low marital rate. Promiscuity of a younger generation in schools and universities. A rise in abortion and AIDS. An increase in the crime rate. and increased belief in magic and Satanism. Hmm. Sounds a lot like America. Sounds like we have a lot in common, silly, yeah. doesn't it? I believe- What country is he
1: talking about? Right.
2: I believe that the main source of these problems is that our society and especially the young generation no longer have faith in values such as family, religion, and hard work. The cause is that the cult has taken away our basic rights and is feeding us a version of Islam that has led us to the destruction of religion and society. I have no doubt that Satanists are amongst the religious teachers in Colm since I have heard many true stories of child abuse. Mm-hmm. Our Mullah social engineers have made the public so confused that they no longer uh, know what's right or wrong and therefore are ready to accept a new world order takeover.
1: Hmm. Not surprising. The city of Quam is interesting. I talked with some... Uh, I don't know how you pronounce it. that's the best I know. Q-U-M? Q-O-M. Yeah. Quam, I think. Yeah. I think. I talked with some people who were missionaries there before the takeover. Yeah. They were... They, the time I took... When I, when I talked to them, they were pretty old. but. Yeah. Um, they said... Man, that was the craziest place because, like, basically, like, everybody in Qualm is possessed. Whoa, really? He said, it's the craziest. Yeah, they had this thing where they, like, they opened up their cupboard and all their food was gone. And there were all these claw marks and stuff. Oh, really? And they were like, what just happened? And more importantly, what do we eat? Yeah. And so they sat around for an afternoon going, well, what do we do? Well, we don't have any money, this, that. And then there was a knock at the door. And it was some other guy who just happened to be in town, like a million, a billion to one shot. And he had like, oh, yeah, and here's like a month's worth of food that I happen to have. Do you need any? You know, it was totally crazy,
2: totally crazy. Wow. Well, the point I'm making with that story that I found was that it's very simplistic for us and easy to say, well, it's all a part of this other religion. And in fact, there's tons of other religions out there. Mm -hmm. We just picked this one and we'll make them the the source of our problems, or this particular ethnic group or people in this area, and that's the cause of all of it. Mm -hmm. But when we've seen over and over and over again the wealthy and the powerful that are infiltrated, all these groups, including some that carry the name of Christianity Mm -hmm. or Americans, Mm -hmm. all these kind of groups foment this. Mm -hmm. They take the media and they try to say it's all because of these people or all this ethnic group. I mean, we haven't learned anything from the time of Hitler. You know, when he says it's just people of this religion, of this ethnic group that are all the source of our problems, but Christians are falling right back into it. When we find out that, that Iran or these other uh, Middle Eastern staters or, or Islamic states aren't monolithic, yeah. like we'd like to make it real simple so we yeah. know who to hate, Yeah. When when there's a struggle going on there, there are people of goodwill. Some that are Christians, maybe some of other faiths, but people that are goodwill mm-hmm. that don't go for all this. And then the, the people who are at the top, if this is true, it's just like what we see here. They may say they're Muslims, but mm-hmm. they don't care. They worship Satan the same mm-hmm. way the Christians. There's some people who say they're Christians true. that Probably we've caught not. doing all sorts of terrible stuff in our country. Yeah. So we have to know when Satan is trying to do a little switcheroo on us and mend us from where the real problems are. So mm-hmm. i get off of, No, so that's foggy, a that's a good one. And how that, about
1: this story just... That's, that's a really good one. Shows it. Yeah. That's a really good one, and it sort of relates to both of my stories. Well, jump in. Uh, do we want to hear about the pre-crime Magic 8-Ball using resentment and spoken and written information to identify, quote-unquote, the terrorists? Or do we want to hear how the Army embeds active-duty PSYOP soldiers at a local TV stations? Oh, that one sounds good. The second one? Yeah. Okay. Uh, U.S. Army. Uh, the U.S. Army has used this – is, this is via a website called the Upshot – uh, the U.S. Army has used television stations in the U.S. To, as training posts for some of its psychological operations personnel that Upshot has learned. Since at least 2001, both the w, both WRAL, a CBS affiliate, affiliate in Raleigh, North Carolina, and WTOC, a CBS affiliate in Savannah, Georgia, have regularly hosted active-duty soldiers from the Army's Force psychological operations group as part of the Army's training with industry program.
2: That's a huge story. Yeah. That's huge, and and they're naming names.
1: Sure, they're not just saying it's always happening out there. Here's where it's happening. Well, you can go back and yeah, yeah. there was a 200 billion, and I mean that B with Mm -hmm. a billion, 200 billion dollar program that uh, the current administration put in just after they got into power, uh, just after they, you know, January 20th. There, Mm -hmm. uh, 200 billion dollars to embed pro volunteerist, pro civil service. Pro government messages embed them in uh, the top two hundred sitcoms. Yeah, top two hundred. Yeah. So this is nineteen eighty four. This is like the Stalin regime nineteen eighty four American style. Mm -hmm. Except that, like nobody nobody cares. It's like that. It's a lot like that Boston. Uh, uh, that Boston, I think it was Boston Globe article you yeah. read about when people are faced with data that they can't deal with, yeah. they question the validity of it, right, and and further embed themselves in their position.
2: I think you've maybe experienced that a few times with people you've talked to, have you not? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like all like, the time, like everybody. Christian people, yeah, Christian yeah. people. It
1: doesn't make them bad people; it's just yeah. predictable human behavior.
2: Well, you know, compared to the Stalin regime, at least then people sort of figured that stuff out. And they never really started believing any of those kind of messages after a while. Uh, I don't, maybe we, I don't know. Well, I don't think they did. I don't think the common people. They, when I've talked to Russians when I've been over there, like older ones that grew up under all that, mm. they figured out after a while that like that stuff mm. they couldn't do anything about it. They were going to still yeah. spread it, but they didn't believe it. I don't think we've come that far. I still think, and and sadly, Christians are bringing up the rear on the discernment factor on this. I well, believe. I don't
1: know. I would I would be a dissenting opinion on that, and I would base that on testimony. Uh, testimonies based uh, in uh, uh, several of Richard Wormbrandt's books, he would talk about talking to Russian Russian officers and other Russian nationals uh, who weren't in the military, and they would say things like, "Unless the government, if the government tells me to believe in God, I'll believe in God. Mm-hmm. If it says that that I don't need to, then I won't." Yeah, you know, uh, as anything, just like your previous story, I'm sure it was a miss, much more Uh story.
2: yeah, you're right. So it's much more complicated. I would I would submit also in counter to your counter that. People who are in high level positions learn to play the game better. Hmm. Either, they, either they are true blue, like they buy it, because once you, it's like 1984, once you cross the Rubicon of that there really is no truth except what the state is, mm-hmm. then you'll do anything. Yeah. Just like the SS That's true. would do whatever. So some of the more powerful probably did it, but there are there always some pretenders behind the scenes. But down below that level, you know, the lower civil service kind mm-hmm. of stuff, a lot of those people still worshiped God. You know, they did yeah. it quietly. Uh, I mean, I met scientists, Russian scientists I work with that smuggled jazz music in. Wow. And it was punishable by like 10, 20 years in prison hmm. wow. because it, they said it sort of freed the soul and the mind away from what was going on. Wow. so
1: that's heavy. Um, well, back to the article. Training with industry is designed to offer career soldiers a chance to pick up skills through internships and fellowships with private businesses. The PSYOP soldiers used WRAL and WTOC to learn broadcasting and communications expertise that they could apply in their mission, as the Army describes it, of influencing the emotions, motives, objective reasoning, and ultimately the behavior of foreign audiences. W-R-A-L and W-T-O-C were on a list of participants in the Army's training with industry program provided to the upshot in response to a Freedom of Information Act request, and a spokesman with the Army's Human Resources Command confirmed that PSYOP soldiers worked at the stations. Both of those stations are very supportive of the military and think very highly of the program, said Lieutenant Colonel Stacy ba- Bathrick. Our officers are there to learn best practices in terms of programming and production site that they can use when they deploy. Uh, to be able to get hands-on interaction with a news station, there's nothing like that," Bathrick said. "The soldiers were never involved in news gathering. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I put that last part in. Hmm. Uh, the relationship between psyops training with industry and television news operations has stirred controversy in the past. In 2000, after a Dutch newspaper reported that psyops troops had been in, had been placed in CNN's newsroom under the program, CNN discontinued the internships, internships and admitted they had been, they had. Uh, that they had been a mistake. They had, I think, what they meant is they they made a mistake. It was inappropriate for PSYOP's personnel to be at C.N.N. They are not here now, and they never will be again at C.N.N. Spokesman said at the time. So there you have it. I mean, it's like now you can like drive to the front door and say, "Let me see the troops that work for you know shaping minds." Yeah. George
2: Orwell would just shake his head in disbelief.
1: Yep. Most Christians that go, well, what's wrong with that? I don't understand.
2: Yeah. They tell me what I want to believe. Yeah. That sounds good to me.
1: Could you give me some more SOMA?
2: Now, the the thing is, is that they don't realize, what they say, oh, well, they weren't writing in the news stories, that you've completely lost the trust of the public. Mm Mm-hmm. There's like saying, well, just take our word for us. Take our, you know, take our word Mm -hmm. that they're not doing anything else. Mm Mm-hmm. When, you know, I think there should be a big debate, public debate, about whether those stations are serving the public's interest. Yeah, well. They may say they are by providing their capability to teach them how to deceive us better, but the FCC the licenses they have to broadcast mm-hmm. are dependent upon only if they're serving the public interest.
1: Yeah, sure, and I don't think that I, – I certainly wouldn't say that that is a serving the public interest mm-hmm. type of thing. But then again, nobody asks me, and when they do, they don't like the answer, so they quit asking. Well, I don't know if they I still- Hardly anybody asks me anything anymore, to be honest. I do. Yeah.
2: Uh, the, uh, you know, they used to do editorials on the news. I don't know if they still do that anymore. I don't watch local news, but if mm-hmm. they did, I'd want to go and get on their show and talk about that on their to their listeners. Yeah. And if they turned you down, I would use that. I'd go straight to the FCC. Wow. So these people are not doing a public service to their listeners, which is a requirement for their license. And that, that debate at least needs to be held.
1: It'd be interesting to see what the FCC, FCC did. My guess is probably nothing. They would probably say. nothing.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're right. They'd say, "How much money do you have? Yeah, you don't have much money. I'm sorry, I'm busy. I'll have something brief." Couple okay. of brief comments. Good.
1: I'd like to get the like to get a couple paragraphs in on my last story, but you know, I don't know. We may not have well, time. Well, this is quick.
2: Okay, go ahead. Okay, I'm just taking a couple com- comments out of a New York Times story they did an expose on Glenn Beck recently, and I'm going to read a few sentences out of this. It's a long, long thing in total, but uh, it says uh, at the beginning, it says Glenn Beck was sprawled out on his office couch a couple of weeks ago, taking, as self-helpers like to say, an inventory. I like to think the country's, what the country's going through right now is, in a way, what I did when I went through my alcoholism, he told me. You can either live or die. You have a choice. Now, think about these comments. I've got a couple more in line with the show we did last week on mm-hmm. AA and the other issues. And then I want to mm-hmm. clarify something on that. But anyway, just think about what we learned about these 12-step programs. Uh, later on, it says, Beck talks like someone who is accustomed to thinking out loud and inflicting his revelations in real time. He speaks in the language of therapy in which he has been steeped through years of 12-step programs and the Mormon-affiliated addiction treatment center he and his wife run in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut regions. Hmm. Uh, And then later it says, uh, he says, it sounds harsh maybe, but this is the rhetoric of crisis and desperation, and so much of the population is too blind drunk to recognize the reality which is that the country is lying on an olive green shag carpet on the brink of ending it all. he was talking about when he had some cheap old flea bag you know apartment when he was divorced and was strung out and everything and what he says uh Some have to destroy their family and their job and their house and their income, Beck told me. Some don't get it and they die. So he's comparing the whole nation to what he went through being an alcoholic and going through 12-step programs. Hmm. He uh, he says, and then he went on to essentially compare his Restoring Honor pageant at the Lincoln Memorial to a large-scale AA meeting. Okay, the thing he just did in, in Washington to an AA meeting. Was the spooky room there? I don't know. He says, when I bottomed out... I couldn't put it back together myself, Beck told me. I could do all the hard work. I could do the 12 steps, but I needed like-minded people around me. He needed support just as responsible Americans need it now to reinforce the principles and values that the founders instilled and that he says has since decayed. You need people to be able to reach out and connect and say, let me help hold you when you're stumbling and help hold me when I'm stumbling because we're going through now is a storm of confusion. Fans, approach Beck back and give him hugs. Do people feel they can hug Limbaugh? Okay. What I I thought when he talked about this, and I had forgotten he had gone through all those programs, those 12-step things, alcoholism. Mm -hmm. That is exactly, I think, the best description of what he's up to. Hmm. Because, you know, he didn't speak about a particular detail on God. It's basically the God of your choosing and your making. Mm -hmm. If you're a rabbi, if you're these different kind of beliefs... You, but you believe it. you got to believe in a higher power. you got to believe in accountability. Hmm. And you go through these approaches, and he's showing these steps of what people have to admit they have a problem, you know, and make amends with other people. He's taken the country through a 12-step program. That's unsettling. And we talked about where some of the origins of that, you know. I mean, hmm. we have a, the man, you know, started at AA talking about how he channeled it from a spirit. And so now we've got someone repackaging it for a whole country mm-hmm. and you've got to read your story, but I just want to say yeah, real no, quickly go ahead. we've got um fr- from our show last week I-, I got two emails from two people regular listeners who I care very much about and appreciate um that were offended by some of the comments in it that they felt like some of the accusations of what people did at the a meetings like you know finding ways to meet people for you know sexual encounters and things well, like I've- that. Was they thought was out of line And I've tried to email to them And, and say uh, you know This is the research from uh, our guest What they said goes on I've not been to AA meetings I don't know But this is the stuff And she has documentation in her book about this stuff But some of them had positive experiences I don't know whether whether it was due to AA Or other things the Lord was doing while they happened to be there But mm-hmm. I just want to acknowledge that I don't mean to offend anybody We're just trying to educate Um We always have limits on what we know or don't know uh, she made her case based upon the research that she'd done uh, mm-hmm. on that and other things. So,
1: but why let let that stand in the way?
2: <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I, I just I appreciate our listeners out yeah. there. And, and, and actually, so surly, it's they terrible. got a ch- well, they got a chance to let me uh, respond. But I just want yeah. to know if anybody else who didn't email. We got a couple minutes
1: less less on A couple minutes, a minute and a half. Okay, all right. all right. I'll go. I'll go. I'll read the story and then go right to the interesting part. Pre-Crime Magic 8-Ball uses resentment and spoken and written information to identify the quote-unquote terrorists. This is via the Buffalo News. Um, uh, this is quoting a Professor Matho Guideri of the University of Geneva. The computer system uh, detects resentment in conversations through measurements in decibels and other voice biometrics. It detects obsessiveness with the individual going back to the same topic over and over, measuring crescendos. As for written transmission scrutinized by the computer program, it can detect the same pattern of fixation on specified subjects, said Guider, who has worked for years screening mass data that involves radicalization and ideological indoctrination. Uh, the article continues, he said "Lone bombers in particular are not mentally deranged, but harbor hatred and deep resentment toward government. Their emotional spikes, Guderian explained, can be identified by the computer program. The practical side is that once the individual has been identified, the information can be passed along to the authorities so surveillance can begin, he said.
2: Oh, my goodness.
1: Currently, the computer program can review 10,000 voice or other electronic transmissions in an hour. Uh, the goal, the professor said, is to increase the capacity to 100,000 per hour. And the article, there's a ton of stuff in here, but I'm getting them.
2: I didn't mean to rush you on no. that.
1: That's cool. I, I mean, if we're done, we're done. That's
2: the system, basically. If somebody has issues with what the government's doing, That's the they 1984 can diagnose system. it, yeah. and they can be surveilled not even know they're being surveilled. Sure. I saw just today. <laughs> oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah, I saw today just today some guy said... Uh, uh, does anybody know about this? And he posted a link to a picture. Yeah. And it was, a, uh, it was the, uh, the, the Cadmium GT850, which is a uh, surveillance, FBI surveillance tracking device that he had found mounted in his car. So.
2: I don't know what to say. But other than Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact
0: us at FutureQuake?
5: FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. during the radio broadcast You know what, I'm
2: dumbfounded anyway I can't add anything yeah, to that Sorry. We'll Mull that over audience yeah. Come back next week for the next week of uh, shows Until then we hope your future is always bright Have a good day
0: Bye. Join us next time As we dare to experience Another aftershock of a future quake, 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 quake.